Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Robinhood, Hymns, Orion, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. We're now two episodes into the story of the Beth Sphere, and we've learned quite a bit up until now. We've cleared up some misconceptions about the circumstances under which the Sphere was discovered and gotten to know the Betts family, who became its custodians. We believe that when possible, one should always get to know the people whose legend you're sharing. It is, after all, their legend, and we're only borrowing it, and in the case of this particular tale, doing so with a great deal of assistance from the folks who lived through it. Tonight, we'll move past the discovery of the sphere and what it did as we dig into the ensuing investigations and the myriad of personalities that became involved, including the venerated U.S. Air Force UFO investigator, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who became a Betts family friend over time. But did he have other intentions? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. And all of a sudden, a man grabbed her from behind around the neck. She fell off of the ottoman that she was sitting on and dropped the phone. She was screaming into the phone, they're trying to get me, they're trying to get me. Paraphrased from our interview with a Betts family member, recounting an attack on Jerry Betts during the fervor surrounding the Betts sphere. Join us tonight for the third part of our ongoing series on the Betts sphere. And we're back. Still not kidnapped. Well, we have been replaced by reptilian lookalikes. If we're reptiles, can't you just see that by looking at us? No, no, because the outside shift. Oh, we yeah. shape shift. Got but it. in between frames of the video, though, you can catch little glimpses. And I got to say, mine's kind of broken. I don't feel right. I just, yeah. Yeah, it's not as good. <laughs> <laughs> you look fine, though. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, folks. Well, we've got a lot to get to tonight, so we're going to keep this brief. Firstly, we'd like to thank the Betts family again for not only participating in this series, but being so incredibly candid and forthcoming coming about at all. Yes, thank you so much. Two announcements. The first one is about something new we're doing in 2019. As anyone who listens to us knows, we have a tendency to corral so much content, we often wind up with extra parts in our series. And guess what? It's happened again. The Bet Sphere is going to four parts now. Will the fourth one be the last one? Most likely in this case. But from here on out, rather than saying how many parts a series is up front, we're just going to give you a heads up when we're posting the last one on all our social media platforms and when we can in the outro of the preceding episode. Now, while we usually strive to be the podcast of record on the topics we cover, this time we've gotten the added privilege of sharing what it was like for the family who actually experienced these events. They've also made it quite clear that this is the last time they're going to be talking to anyone ever. When this series is done, so are they. There's no shortage of more amazing revelations to come tonight in part three from our guest, and we want them all to be heard. The intrigue around this crazy ball just keeps ramping up. Physical assaults on the family, surreptitious late-night experiments, tapped phone lines. We never dreamed all this would be connected to a metal ball that skeptics will tell you just fell off the top of an artist's Volkswagen van. A mile in from a fire road, on stump-covered land, 20 miles from his stated trip through Jacksonville, Florida. All right, we're dark next week, but after that, in part four, we will hear about the Betts house and the strange events that took place there independent of the sphere. Believe it or not, there's actually a little common ground with the Sally house. And after that, 
Forrest and I will share a detailed analysis of the entire case and, of course, our conclusions. And here's our second announcement. Forrest? The Betts family has been sharing some pretty amazing stuff with us, and among that stuff, we've acquired two images of the sphere itself, as photographed by family friend Ron Kivett back in 1974. These are crystal clear photos that have never been seen by the public. In them, the sphere is artfully placed on a stand and pretty well lit. And you can even see the scoring on the surface, presumably from where J. Allen Hynek of Project Blue Book, which had just ended five years earlier, personally tried to obtain samples of the metal it was made of. Since we didn't want to release those photos prior to the publication of the show, we'll be posting them to all of our social media platforms Sunday, January 27th, 2019 at 7 p.m. Pacific, 8 Mountain, 9 Central, and 10 p.m. Eastern. Unfortunately, that's 3 a.m. Monday for those of you in Edinburgh. No, oh, what about those in Adelaide? <laughs> 1.30 in the afternoon. Oh, you figured that Can out. Can you believe that? <laughs> it's not in the script. I actually know that. <laughs> wow, nice. It's funny that you picked Adelaide because that was the one I picked and then I cut it out of the script. But well, then you asked me about it anyway. I just added the blue here and uh, that popped into my head because of the Summerton Man. Nice. All right, well, let's get into tonight's show. Okay, when we last left our hero. Oh, nice. A little Dudley Do-Right Dudley Do-Right, Yeah, he always left a good cliffhanger. Yes. Never had a double entendre pun. Well, in this case, our hero was actually fleeing the National Enquirer's Blue Ribbon Panel, which had just convened that weekend, 420, in New Orleans to analyze the sphere, 1974. Well, up until now, Jerry Betts has been the star player in this family. But Terry Betts, well, Terry deserves superhero status as well. You know, after having been tricked into leaving the sphere behind for God knows who to do, who knows what to it, he did return to rescue it. And not only that, he did. You know, that was pretty brave. This is the guy that will walk into a room full of representatives from a national tabloid, covert operatives from multiple unnamed military organizations, and the international press and walk right out the back door, right in front of them, with what belongs to his family. It was, after all, found on their land. Unfortunately, this may all be after it suffered mightily at the hands of the curious, paranoid, and well-funded. The only question left was, was it too late? Well, once people realize Terry's in the room, one of the reporters says, hey, is there something that the ball does that's really interesting that you can show us? And he stands there for a second. He goes, oh, yeah, let me show you something. You're not going to believe this. He walks over, he picks up, and walks out with it. I mean, what are you going to do? To tackle him in front of all these reporters and everything? And it was just mass pandemonium. He leaves. He walks around the back. People are scattering everywhere. He gets in the car with his sisters, and they take off. We understand later that apparently a lot of people had tried to intercept him at the airport, but he wasn't at the airport. They end up making it back. It's like a Keystone Cops. And when you look at it now with how intelligent things are, you could never do that now. I mean, this was, you know, the National Lampoon escape with the bowl. He comes home, gets to the house, comes in, and everything's fine. And the ball won't do its stuff. It's not rolling. It's not doing its stuff. So... Terry's getting kind of concerned here. I'm not sure exactly if he talked to Dr. Hynek after that or how we found out. The ball had been taken and something had been done to it at that time. When it was held there for that day and a half that Terry didn't have contact with it, they had taken it and they had done something to it. This is when I tell you, you know, what we talked about earlier with just knowing something was wrong and letting Dr. Hynek know that I, I felt like something was going on. 
Well, there you have it. They got it back home, but something's not right. Well, they got something home. Remember, that was one of the warnings. Yeah. That may have sounded far-fetched at the time, that somewhere along the chain of possession, the ball was going to either be confiscated or switched out with a duplicate. And people think, well, come on, who's going to do that? It's just a steel ball. Well, they got the ball back, but they knew that somehow it was different. It had been altered. There was a first round of people who would look through these cases and then give the creme de la creme, the best cases, to the five-member blue ribbon panel. So they weren't looking through hundreds of cases. And what do we say before that? I believe the only ones that had won previously were the folks from the Delphus Ring incident. Remember? Yes. They won the five grand because all the way up until there, nobody had won the big prize. But that was one of the best cases ever, that there was a ring there, there was some weird soil and chemicals that were left in the soil. There's an actual burn mark and some other incidental things that went on with this close encounter. And so that was enough to warrant, like, well, this is a pretty good case with some evidence left behind. The Betts case is so different because nobody shows up with a giant ball. Yeah, and I just want to say for people who are new to the show, we actually did cover the Delphus Ring. If you look through our back catalog or our archives, Delphos is a city in Kansas, and that's spelled D-E-L-P-H-O-S. Well, that's why this case was so special, I think, received the attention that it did. Keep in mind, it's not like this is the first time the Betzes had announced this thing to the public. They'd already been blasted over the news headlines on TV and in print. And so this thing was well known. The Navy had already visited them, remember? Yes. And they'd inquired, and they actually looked at it. And I think they accidentally gave it back too soon. Or we're just being nice. And then when after the two weeks or the time was up, it's like, yeah, we said we'd give it back to you if we couldn't find anything or couldn't prove it was ours. That was the whole stipulation. Just take a look at this thing. Tell me if this is government property. I'll gladly give it up. That's what Jerry said. You can have it. But if you can't, we'd like it back. And that was the exchange. And it's like, well, it's not ours. We have to determine if this is a threat to the public because that's a military obligation. There are two naval air stations close by, Mayport and Jack's, and that's another likely scenario. Is that something weird that the public's not familiar with? It's not normal commercial industry. It might have fallen off of a military aircraft, a jet or something. And it could be explosive. Well, they don't know. So that's why they have to to determine if it is. They didn't. If it's nothing, why then did they show up at the National Enquirer panel here. Why were they there? Because that's what I believe is that normally they wouldn't care. Maybe they send somebody to just keep an ear out. They read the paper. They monitor everything, but they're not going to send somebody to sneak a sample, a thimbleful of Ronnie and Darrell's dirt from Dolphus. Right. To see if it really does have a barkeeper's friend in it. <laughs> oxalic acid. This is a big deal. Again, nobody shows up with this much evidence that has been purported to have done such strange things. And again, the argument here is that, well, the military didn't care about it so much. Well, they did look at it, but there was a quote, and I'll just keep repeating it throughout these shows, is that uh, CPO Berninger said, well, it looks to be man-made and industrial, and and, uh, we don't know what it is, but it's not that special. But he was quoted as saying, this thing is weird. Yeah. Why would he say that? That shows up a lot. Well, in this next little section of the interview that we're going to play, we're going to start to hear a little bit more about J. Allen Hynek. Right. And what kind of person he was. He's going to be a major player in this investigation, along with Dr. James Albert Harder. Uh, What can you tell our listeners about these two gentlemen? We've talked about uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek much before. He's one of the rock stars in this field. Rob Christofferson, as he calls him, he's our UFO dad. So, you know, he's one of the major players. But this case here, 
brings out all the major players. And to your point earlier about the National Enquirer Blue Ribbon panel, is it kind of a sham? Is it a, is it a front for just the government spying on you just to get these people together under this guise of trying to be serious about it? Well, I wanted to make a point about that because as I mentioned in, in part two, I believe, there's a series of email exchanges between Bob Pratt and Jerry Cohen. Now, Bob Pratt was a longtime UFO researcher and writer. You talked about reporter. him a little bit in part two, I did, right? yeah, because yeah. They, uh, in that email exchange we found, he describes what the panel was about, how it was set up. And then what we didn't really talk about so much, though, was the tone, why the Inquirer was doing it. I think just to keep it short there, well, the reason was, come on, the Inquirer is there to sell newspapers. It's a business concern. You know, it's like any other industry here in America. You can't expect them to come save you or be that caring. Really, they're there to make money. That's the Inquirer. Their bread and butter is news of the weird, the crazy stuff. And in the mid-70s, that was Bigfoot. That was UFOs, ghosts. It was all that kind of stuff. It was the paranormal. It's a big seller. Still is. They were interested in furthering that. And if they could get some good stories out of it, the best in the country, maybe the best in the world to come together, it's in their best interest to fund that. They have a lot of money comparatively. They put these people up for the weekend here. And in this case, it was April 20th, 1974 in New Orleans. Well, it's a trip to New Orleans. We're getting this all together. We're going to sponsor this. And so, you know, it's promotion for them. It's more readership. Was the Navy interested? I'm sure they maybe listened in. They maybe sent a representative. Not that big of a deal. But you might ask, why these serious scientists, and they are serious scientists. These are astronomers like J. Allen Hynek. They are professors of hydraulics and civil engineering like James Harder. At UC Berkeley. He was also a professor emeritus there as well. Yeah, yeah, which means you got to know what they're doing, otherwise they don't want you to keep coming back. So, you know, as a retired older gentleman, you know, he gets ridiculed and poo-pooed for even checking stuff out. And he is in the woo, but you know, as far as like what he was considering to be possible, but he'd seen a lot of stuff. That's the thing that I think gets lost on people. And they say, oh, well, this guy's coming out of left field. I mean, he just, later he said this and that and the other. You have to wonder what happens to somebody after they're doing decades of research right. and accumulating a big collection of unexplainable things. That's exactly what happened to him. He started off and then he had a change of heart over thousands of cases and a personal experience or two. So in this case, though, you may ask why these people would be getting together with the Inquirer. Its reputation wasn't any better then, but they were at least one publication that was willing to spend some money on this. And so as Bob Pratt said, the reason they would is that a lot of these guys, they weren't getting any funding for their independent research. It wasn't coming from the government anymore. When Heineck was involved with the Air Force, well, as we'll see, their attitude was, you just got to debunk all this stuff. That's what we need you for. We don't want to hear any theories. We don't want to hear you go off script. Just lay this to rest as nothing more than a misunderstanding. You didn't see what you saw. So he knew that's what his role was. And as time passed, that kind of changed for him. Well, they thought maybe the Inquirer, if we get a really good case, they'll throw some money behind this and like a really stellar opportunity to really check out some solid evidence. And that's what they thought they had here. So that's where these scientists, these serious people in this kind of, you know, fringy area, some would say, many would say, that's what their interest was in attending this thing. It's like, well, they're putting out the money. Maybe if we get something good, they'll put some more money behind it because we need money for independent research. Okay, so we're going to play this next segment of our interview with our Betts family member, 
This section starts out with me asking her why the Betts family is so hard to find these days. I'll explain that to you, too. There's okay. a reason for that. There's so much. After you reached out to me, yeah. I Googled yes. baseball. Yes. Wow. I've never done that. <laughs> uh-huh. So that should tell you how far removed a lot of people are from it now. But I was amazed that, first of all, the stuff that's not true, there's all this, it's a hoax, you know, and all this stuff. And I thought, to be a hoax, I think you have to set out to deceive. We never figured out what it was. We don't know. We aren't even putting anything out there. We just know what we've been told. Right. And some people, maybe you can easily discount, but when you have people who are Dr. James Harder, yeah, he was there, and I forget exactly what his field of study was, but the man was very, very smart. And then J. Allen Hynek, yeah. who headed up Project Blue Book, was at the Betts house a lot and became a personal family friend and shared things with the family that would rock a lot of people's world. I mean, things that you hear that you go, oh, that's crap. There's a lot of it that's true if what he's saying is truthful. And I don't know that he would have had any reason to lie to them. But the things that he told the Betts family about the space ball were shocking. Did you meet Heineck? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Several times. Had breakfast with him. What was he like? So Dr. Heineck, he was eccentric. He reminded you... At the time, a little bit of Colonel Sanders, you know, with the little beard and the white hair and the glasses. He was very, very intelligent. But one of the things that was very interesting about him was that he could take very complex subject matter, which most of us, it's far beyond us. And he could put it in terminology that made you understand it, or at least where you could grasp where he was going with it. The very first time he came to visit the family, he brought just like an overnight bag and he just wanted to see the ball and talk to us. Let me get this straight. Was he crashing with you guys? He came to our house. He was just going to spend one night. He got there. He saw the ball. He was fascinated. I don't think he knew quite what to think. All he'd seen at that point were pictures and he'd seen some news clips and he'd heard some things. He ended up staying up all night. Jerry got up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and walks downstairs and all the lights are on in his room. And the way the house was shaped, when you're in the kitchen, you can see into some of the bedroom windows because it was an L shape. <laughs> you know, he's got the curtains open and he's in there and he's got all kinds of stuff out of this bag. He didn't have any clothes. He had brought equipment with him. Jerry went and knocked on the door. She said, hey, what's going on? And he said, "I let me be perfectly frank with you. This is amazing. And I need to do some studies. I brought some equipment and I should have been more forthright about it. So it was At that point, I think the walls came down. I think he felt badly enough. It was like, okay, let me tell you what I'm thinking. And he wanted to take samples of the exterior of the ball, some type of filing and shavings to have them submitted for testing to figure out what kind of metal it was because it looked like stainless steel, but no one really knew. It was hollow on the inside, which my understanding is if you have a hollow object, especially a hollow object that has other objects inside, To get those objects in, you either have to, it has a seam where you've put two pieces together, or you drill a hole and drop objects in through that, or you can hollow something out through a hole. The ball had no seam, had no exterior holes, or what they would have called a fill point, I think is what he referred to it as. There was none of that, and it had three balls, tiny balls inside that kind of floated around, and you'd hear them sometimes just kind of ping against the inside. The ball weighed, I don't know, probably close to 20 pounds, maybe 18. I don't know what the exact weight of it was. Very, very heavy and very shiny. He was trying to take samples, but he couldn't get any sampling off. The metal was so hard. And he said, this isn't making sense because, you know, I'm thinking it's stainless steel because it's not rusted and I can't get any shavings off of it. So he told her, I would really like 
to take it and, and get some proper sampling done. So they ended up talking about it and eventually she did let them do that. It was those shavings that came back later on to have some atomic numbers that just didn't make any sense. Oh, really? He said that the highest atomic number that we knew at the time, and I forget what the metal was, well, the ball came back with some number that was far higher. He was very upfront with us about the test and said, this doesn't make sense. We don't have any metal that has that kind of atomic number. We don't know what this is. So we knew, okay, well, there's something very special about it. And we had seen it doing weird things, which is how it got out in the news in the first place, because we were curious. I'm Pia Helene Skogfjord, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Apparently, Jerry got other x-rays done. It was taken to some facility. We got x-rays done. They were nothing like the x-rays we'd gotten initially. There's a giant, almost like a white line that goes down the middle of the ball now in the inside where there used to be three little floaty things. Now it's just like shavings, like dust. It still gets magnetic. And Dr. Hynek said that the ball had two North Poles and two South Poles. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I think that that's not possible. It's not really possible to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it had two North Poles and two South Poles. And they said that in itself, they think that might've had something to do with the propulsion that it used. And he brought up that there were things called balls. I guess during World War II, maybe? They, some of the planes reported seeing these Foo Yeah, fighters. that's what the Foo Fighters were named for. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. So he had mentioned those and that they thought maybe this was part of the propulsion system and that that could possibly be what it was. But even those, they didn't really know what they were dealing with. The ball, as the family had it now and not functioning, because it seems like there's an implication that the ball was switched or, or tampered with or, or, tampered or drilled cut into. Open. Or cut or open. open. Our feeling was that it was cut open. And here's why. There were certain marks on the ball that were like um, gouges and things yeah. in it. Yeah. And in some of the gouges, you'd see like brown matter. We were told that some of that brown matter they felt like was meteor-type matter, where it hit things, possibly coming through. And that's where the space ball stuff started. And that was because of the metal, because of some of the things they retrieved off of the ball, some of the matter that was ground into it where it had been hit. So it had scarring on it. And some of the scarring was stuff that we knew what to look for. We knew where it was. We recognized it. And that was still on the ball. So I think it was still the same ball. I just think that they had gone and they had destroyed it. My thought now when I look at it, I think that either it was something that we did make here on earth and it was a military thing that somehow got away. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that it might've been something very dangerous. And I think that they deactivated or whatever they had to do. I don't know that I believe that it's from outer space, but Dr. Hynek never ever alluded to the fact that he felt like it was from here. He truly felt like it had come from somewhere else. But what's interesting is that in a lot of reports that I read later, he's saying, oh no, it's something man-made, which he never said that to us. Never, ever. It's quite to the contrary. Wow. I'm just, I'm, we're blown away. Yeah. Um, that's in every report you hear. <laughs> yeah. He leans the other yeah. way, or that's the way it's shaded, is that uh, he always believed never. it was man-made. He just didn't know what it was. He's connected enough that if it's something that we're using for warfare or something like that, unless it's super top secret, and I know that the agencies don't always communicate with one another. Sure. I feel like he would have known. He was in with everybody. You know, so I just find it very unusual that he could look at it and go, oh, no, you know, it's, we have no idea what it is. If it were ours, I think he would have known. I really do. But he shared a lot of stuff as we got to know him. And this became a friendship that went on for several years. He would tell us things like about Roswell. 
and stuff like that. And he wouldn't go into great, great detail, but he was very clear that that absolutely happened, that things were retrieved from there, that bodies were retrieved from there. And that he said, there's just so much that you don't know and so much that people feel like if people did know that it would destroy people's religious beliefs, it would panic people. Because then all of a sudden, it's not just us and we're not the superior being, you know, we're a speck. He said that that stuff absolutely happened and told us about several other things that were going on at the time, stories that he would tell us. And he would sit up at night and talk about those kind of things very freely. One of the reasons why we disappeared off the radar at this time, we started getting freaky people coming out of the woodwork. At one point, some people contacted Jerry and said, uh, and I forget whom they represented themselves as. I'm not, I'd have to ask her to know for certain, but essentially they came in, they were big into technology and that kind of field. And they were interested in seeing the ball because they felt like it was possibly some type of propulsion system or something. They wanted to come in and see it. They got picked up at the airport by the son-in-law, who's a police officer. And he brought them to the house and they gave him a thousand dollar tip for the ride. Now this is 1974. That's a <laughs> yeah, wow. change. Yeah. So, that's a lot of money. And cops don't exactly knock down the bucks. So a thousand bucks is a lot of money. Sure. Then after they got to the house, one of the first bits of business before they even saw the ball, they told Jerry that they would pay her a quarter of a million dollars cash for it. And wow. she said instantly she just felt this feeling that wasn't good. And she said, well, I'd love to show it to you right now, but we don't have it here. We weren't able to get it out here. It's at the bank and they've closed and, you know, we won't be able to get it until Monday. And so I can't show it to you. Well, it was at the house and she was really, really uncomfortable with him. And she said it was like the whole demeanor changed and they were very cold and obviously irritated with her. And what was interesting, the police officer, son-in-law, was still there, kind of keeping an eye on things. And even he got that weird vibe that something wasn't right. They ended up having a conversation that night and having beverages or whatever. He took them back to the airport. They flew out. Through some friends of hers, she tried to find out who they were and what their real background was. And the information they had provided to her as to who they were and who they represented was not true. They weren't those people. So we have no idea who they were. Her gut was that it was probably someone from another country Foreign who knew, either knew what this was or suspected what it was, if it was, in fact, something that was our military, that they either knew or suspected or wanted it. To offer a mother of six kids $250,000 cash for a thing we found out in the woods, you know, <laughs> that says a lot to her integrity to say, mm, no, I don't think so. so it absolutely does. That was when we started shutting down because it seemed like we were starting to attract really scary people. Did you personally see these men? No, I did not. I was not privy to that meeting, but I, I heard from them I mean, firsthand what had happened. It would not be unusual that these would actually be men in black. And not saying that they're alien or, or anything, but an agency of the government right? where they appear to be and act exactly as you're describing. It just was really creepy, really odd. And looking now, why would you offer somebody money for something you haven't even seen? There was a lot of talk of uh, people saying that it seemed to be, or even Jerry speculating, I don't know, that it seemed to get energy from the sun or be more active on sunny days than on cloudy days? Is that something that you, you know, remember? I read that too. And that's not anything that I remember us ever okay. talking about, except that instance of, and that may be where it came from, the instance where it was taken outside and then it just didn't cool off. And it's finally, probably three days later, it got back to its normal temperature, which, you know, a big metal steel ball, they're, they're cold. Yeah. It's cold all the time, Yeah, but it stayed hot. And the speculation was, okay, if it was out there for an hour and it got this hot, 
and it stayed that hot, we probably don't want to be doing yeah, this. Right. <laughs> this may not be good. Right. So it went back in the bowling <laughs> bag and got put away. <laughs> so, which isn't that funny because people said, oh, yeah, they kept it in the safe and all that. We had it in a bowling ball bag and we hid it. <laughs> the other thing people said was you put it in there to keep it from running away. Is that true or just? No. And I read that too. Yeah. No, it, we weren't really worried about it running away. I mean, it would roll out sometimes if you didn't have it in the bag because the bag had like this metal piece and it's those old kind of triangular shaped yeah, bowling yeah, bags, yeah, yeah. old pool bags. Yeah. It's like that. So it had that, that mechanism in the bottom that held it still. <laughs> yeah. And that was just to keep it from rolling out or anything like that. Cause it would roll on its own. But after the stuff with the government, after they got hold of it, it didn't roll anymore. It would get magnetic, but it wouldn't roll anymore. On that trip that Terry took and where he got tricked into coming back home, mm-hmm. what branch of the government was it that had it at that point? That was the Navy. That was the, the Navy. Navy was a part of it. But but you had the Navy there, but you had NASA there. You had whatever division J. Allen Hynek really represented other than Project Blue Book. So I think you had a little bit of everybody there. Right. Was there any marks on it? I can't remember if you said this already, that it looked like it had been drilled through and maybe welded shut and ground down again and tried to be covered up? No, you couldn't see. The thing was, you couldn't see anything different on the outside at all. It was After all they had that x-ray, you could see it. But you couldn't see it on the outside. It still looked exactly the same. It that did. was the weird thing about it. Which, you know, back then, people didn't talk about lasers. I don't even know if they used lasers much. But obviously, now looking at it, that had to have been some type of laser cut. It would have had to have been. But you didn't see anything different on the outside of the ball. So I don't know how they did it. Uh-huh. I just know looking at those x-rays, those x-rays were not the same. You know, the first thing I think of, I think of Star Wars here. <laughs> because it's back when they buy that... What, dro- carbonite? You no, know, they buy the droid that breaks down immediately from yes. the Jawas. Uh-huh. And Luke goes, Uncle Owen, this one's got a bad motivator. And that's what happened to the ball. It came back with a bad motivator. It won't do its thing anymore. It's still magnetic, but that's it. It won't move. It's all its old tricks are done. And now it really is just an art ball. Oh, well, Which it never was in the first place. Uh, but seriously, I mean, yeah. it's dead. In, in some of the research that we did, it was actually referred to at this point as a dead ball. Yes. Okay. But here's where I think it's fascinating because as this story evolves and develops right outside of our ears, as you're hearing this, the idea, though, is that have been riding along with this story from the beginning from people is that, one, it was a space probe of some kind, either ours or theirs, but it was damaged. Because it didn't behave totally independently and intelligently. It did a few things that were very odd, but not fully. People got the impression from seeing it. It's like, well, is it broken? Because it's kind of like, you know, like if you saw something bumping in the walls, like your Roomba is not cleaning the whole room. It's just hitting one wall and it's chasing the cat, you know, or something. (laughs) It's not doing its function. It's limited. So that's been an observation all along that if it was some kind of weird probe, high tech military stuff, that it was damaged and fell off of something. Or that when you're talking about a bad motivator, it's not acting the way a fine product that you buy from the Jawas should. In that it's, you don't <laughs> well, understand. Like, well, the Jawas the are, yeah, they're scammers. <laughs> hey, come on now. Let's I'm not just cast saying. aspersions no. about desert people <laughs> that are of short stature. Yes. Uh, my point here is that also to me is the idea that I'm forming is that it did not seem to have a full self-determined range of actions. Yes. So with this ball, it's to me not exhibiting a lot of self-determined action. It has self-preservation kind of things where, you know, it doesn't fall off the edge of something. It knows it can sense some things and maybe has a pattern to do that, but it seems it's not fully functioning or whatever it was functioning with. It's not a part of that now. It is what it is as a piece of metal. It's highly magnetic 
but it does not move on its own. I want to come back to my original point that all these extra parties that were part of the Blue Ribbon panel, they clearly did something to it in that time that they tricked Terry into leaving. While he was gone, when he came back, it was different. These x-rays proved that it was different. It has been tampered with. So there was some subterfuge going on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they had a day and a half, I believe, to do their dastardly scientific things to it. Let's just recap that a little bit. Someone came up to him and said, your mom's been hurt. There's an accident. You got to get home. (laughs) All right. So think how orchestrated this is. Someone came up with this plan. And then somebody was dispatched to freak him out. Yeah. And then he tries to call. He can't get through, but their phone's ringing off the hook anyway. But maybe he can't get through because they have done something to the line. Well, you just tell somebody to keep calling the house. Yeah, keep calling Uh, the house. While this 21-year-old kid's freaking out and trying to call home. Right. Just tie up the line. Yeah, and then they're like, like, oh my gosh, you better get home. You know what? We have a plane right here. It's standing by. You know, that's convenient. weird by coincidence. It's totally fueled up. Right. And so then he flies home. Yeah. And she's like, what are you doing here? You got to get back. Jerry's like, I'm fine. There's no accident. So then he goes back. He flies back while his sisters are driving back to pick him up later. He gets there. They won't even let him in for like a day. Yeah. They're like, no, you're not now. You can't. You got to stay in the hotel. So then the next day he goes in and that's when he absconds with it in front of everybody, which is so awesome. Terry, I don't know if you're ever going to hear this, but if you do, (laughs) it's just one of the most awesome things I have ever heard. What you did just magnificent. A so, bold move, sir. We yes, applaud you for we it. do. Yeah. And so he's taken off with it. So in that time that they're being surreptitious, they've tricked him into leaving, he comes back, they've done something to it and it's not working right anymore. And the x-rays prove that it's different mm-hmm. comparatively, according to the Betts family. Right. I don't think it was somebody at the National Enquirer at the Vice Column. No, well, NASA was there. The Navy was there. You know, there was probably other people there that maybe didn't have their badges on. No, no, it wasn't in... Low-profile agencies. Right, right. and I don't think it would have been the five members of the scientific panel because they're, let's say, more pro-UFO people, open to that kind of thing, who want to study stuff, but it's not like they want to alter it to uh, develop into a death ray. Speaking of that, let's talk about all this Hynek stuff. This is really, this was revelatory. When we talk about the government agencies that were there, Project Blue Book had closed. I don't know a whole lot about Hynek's life. I know we're going to get into that towards mm-hmm. the the end of tonight's episode. We're going to yes. go deeper on it. But was was he still on a government payroll at this point, or is he like an independent researcher? I prepared a few notes that I copied directly from Wikipedia. So they, <laughs> they must all be true, and I'm lazy. Hey, we pay yeah. $3 a month to them, so. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wish it was more. I'm sure they do, too. But yeah. in 74, he would have been a professor at Northwestern, which is where he was, because remember the whole thing when we talked about in part yes. one? They don't want to ship it up there. Yeah, and and I think he probably agreed that it wasn't good. But I'm going to make a case here that he was kind of the guy that went along with the flow. And he knew who was paying his meal tickets here. At this point, I would say that he was doing his independent research for the most part. Rob Kay, our stalwart UFO expert, may have some other ideas. But I think at this point, he was writing, he was teaching. But that's why, as I said earlier tonight, why these serious and respected men of science, you know, at least with Hynek, he was well-respected. He was very well-respected by the Air Force. They thought he did a good job, at least one of the guys that took over Project Blue Book and his attitude and his experience. Well-educated, impartial, adhered to the scientific method. Yeah, but I think he still had connections. Does that make sense? Yeah. To government agencies, because they also had means that would be beneficial to 
what he wanted to find out. I still believe at the heart of it, he's on a quest for answers and truth in this field because he started to really believe that something was going on. I wouldn't say that he was the one who called the jet to be on standby, wheels up in 20 minutes to get Terry on it and back home. While he's they, a bystander he, to that part of the process. I don't think he was... That's yeah. standby. Okay, so you heard the phone ring just before the break we just took, and it's pretty amazing. We actually just got a call from our source in the Betts family. We have a source. We have a source who we've become pretty good friends with, and the information just keeps flowing. Now, something I want to make clear is our source is not Jerry Betts. It is oh, not. Oh, no, no, yeah. It is not Jerry, but it is somebody who can very easily get in touch with Jerry, and we have an open line of communication going back and forth between right. Jerry, which is pretty awesome. Thank you for that, Jerry. It's a real privilege to be able to share all this information. So what had happened was we had contacted our source, who was the same person we've been interviewing for this series, and we had a few questions for Jerry that had gone unanswered, some of which we'd already alluded to, including the ones about this Williston character who keeps popping up, and I like to call him character in a very (laughs) diminishing way. (laughs) If that is your, that is not his name. Yeah, Yeah, if that is your real name, sir. (laughs) And also, there were some questions about the timeline on the series of x-rays. The first x-ray, were we right? We wanted to clarify some of that. And that actually all got ironed out, and everything we've been saying is accurate. One thing that we will clarify is that when the sphere or the ball was first taken to the Navy initially, early on, we mentioned that it went to Mayport. We believe that it went to Mayport. Part of the new information we heard tonight was they said, well, Mayport can't x-ray this. And then we talked about it going to Cape Canaveral, which is pretty far away. Yeah. But some of the new information we got tonight was maybe they said, well, Mayport only has a 150 kilovolt x-ray machine, but there may be a 300 kilovolt x-ray machine twice as powerful at Jack's Naval Air Station, which is pretty close by relative to Cape Canaveral. So we're going to put that in the mix. It might have been the Jacksonville Naval Air Station as opposed to Cape Canaveral. But either way, there was an implication that when they first x-rayed it, they couldn't get the x-ray to penetrate it, so then they had to take it to a more powerful machine. But here's the interesting thing, too. We had talked in the earlier parts about how Jerry Betts, and this is what we heard through our source, so under the impression through our, that the person who brought it back was a junior character who brought the sphere back. So the details of our story were the sphere was returned to the family along inadvertently, apparently, with these x-rays. Turns out there's a lot more details to that story, and we just got those. The first thing that we just found out is our character that we keep revisiting in this series is Chief Petty Officer Chris Berninger, who is actually the only person to go on the record and make a statement on behalf of the Navy. Right, Forrest? As far as I can tell, he's the only official, yeah, Navy spokesman that's made a statement to the media. To the press. And so we right. found that in some of the articles. There were quotes from him. And he's also the one that said, well, I don't know if it's uh, alien, but there's definitely something weird about it. Yeah, that was kind of an off comment to the rest of it, which is basically the same statements you would expect them to make. Just we analyzed it. I can't tell you where it came from, but it seems to be man-made. It is not property of the Navy or the military. It is not explosive. It is not radioactive. But it is weird. And that was a little statement you do see him quoted as saying. So that's my point when people say like, well, the, you know, the Navy examined it. They didn't think anything was weird about it. Well, this guy did. Right. And so here's the chain of events that's really interesting about this. And this is information that we indirectly just received from Jerry Betts via the person who we've been hearing from in all our interviews who just called us. According to Jerry, during the time that the sphere was at Mayport or Jack's, wherever it was getting x-rayed, There was a phone call from someone named 
Williston, who <laughs> that's the guy we were talking. Is this a real person? She's like, no, this is a person. This person Williston called. He indicated that he was a professor at the University of Florida, and he really wanted to take a look at the sphere. To which Jerry said, I don't have it. The Navy has it. They're examining it over at Mayport or wherever they are to try and get it x-rayed. But it's on its way back to me. So after she tells Williston that she doesn't have it, the Navy has it. Just 45 minutes to an hour later, the Navy actually shows up with it. And the person who we earlier described as a junior level, maybe not an officer, or somebody who seemed a little green is showing up with it, actually, turns out the guy, he's a non-commissioned officer, right? Is that what a CPO is? Yes, it stands for Chief Petty Officer in the Navy, and that rank is E7. So that means, you know, he's an enlisted man, but he's the seventh highest enlisted rank. So he's not an officer, but he's a high-ranking enlisted man. So he's not a, a flunky. He signed up two weeks ago, and he passed basic training, and now he's delivering balls and documents. Ah, right. Uh, No, no. And also, this is the guy that's, he is the main dude who is being quoted and is standing in for the Navy, at least until we get to the panel in New Orleans. So our contact here in the ARC had an explanation of what that duty might be like and why it was kind of limited. He goes on to say, this is a fairly high enlisted person, this Berninger. But what it tells me is the Navy, in this case, Naval Explosive Ordnance Disposal, or EOD, probably didn't do much beyond determining that the sphere was not a risk to the public. The EOD inquiry is an unsurprising request as the Betts property was relatively close to an active airfield. Fighters and fighter-bomber crews based near Jacksonville trained both at sea and further inland at the Pine Castle bombing range. The fact of the matter is sometimes bad stuff falls off planes in places that it shouldn't. Most of the main naval research laboratories are near D.C., so any reporting suggesting that a JAS EOD investigation slipped into the woo is an exaggeration. If I was the base commander and I read that an unidentified spherical steel object may have fell from the sky and started a fire, I'd want my EOD guys to get eyes on it ASAP. None of this explains the weird Betts family reporting, though. That gives us a little insight there. So it seems like maybe this initial investigation was just really like, do we need to worry about this thing blowing up? Do we need to worry about this being a problem? So what happens now is Jerry Betts finds out it's on its way back. And during the time that it's en route to her from whichever base it was at, whether it was Mayport or Jacksonville, during that time, she gets two phone calls, each one increasingly more frantic, asking if CPO Berninger is there yet. Is he there? We need to talk to him. Can you please put him on the phone? And she says, he's not here yet. I'll have him call you as soon as he gets here. Okay, they call back a few minutes later. Is he there yet? Is he there? Because we need to talk to him right (laughs) away. Nope, he's not here. But as soon as he comes in the door, I'll give him the message. So then he shows up and being cagey as Jerry is, now we didn't get this detail. I'm surmising this. I'm making Mm. an assumption here. Mm, I'm guessing that she probably chose to receive this fear back before she told him to call the base. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not something anybody has told us. Well, but. it's the first thing he walks into the door with. He's got this sphere, the ball, in a bowling ball bag. In the bowling... I love that everyone is carrying it around in the bowling ball bag. Well, that bag, makes perfect... So. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to be loose in a box or loose on the top of your VW van? Yeah, exactly. No, you're going to have it in a, in a bag that's uh, zippable and has a little cradle at the bottom for it. So he comes into the house and hands it back to her along with a series of x-rays And a document marked unofficial report. Yeah. This is new information. So the unofficial report is on the sphere. So we're going to talk about what that said on it. But after she gets that in her hands, she says, oh, by the way, some people want you to call them back at the base. So he goes, he gets on the phone, and she she can only hear one side of the conversation. But she described his side of the conversation as, yes, sir, yes, sir, 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll try my best. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> so what do you think was going on there? I told you I made a joke about it in, yeah. in the part one. Yeah. Um, do you think we could have that back You for did. A that's bit? right. You yeah. called we, it. There's a few more things we want to do. So if, if you could, could we just borrow it for a few more days or weeks? Yeah. So he apparently had been told to get the ball and report back, yeah. to which Jerry Betts said, you've had it for a week. You've had it plenty of time. You're not getting it back. Yeah. yeah. At which point... He was probably like, please? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, Yeah, look, you know, military guys are taught to be very respectful to public people. You'll hear them often say, yes, ma'am, no, sir. Yes. You know, they carry that sense of uh, order. Of course they do. And And uh, by the way, I'm not casting aspersions on Berninger. He's in an awful position here. He's returning it. What we're surmising is that they were like, okay, it's not explosive. You can take it back. Well, no, here's the other thing. She initially said, hey, if you can determine that it's government property, military or otherwise, yeah, you can have it. I just want to know what it is. And if he can't, then I'd like it back because we found it. Yeah. You know, and they did that. So that's what's interesting here. And so Berninger did his duty. He checked it out. As we just read, they're basically just going to see if it's a threat to the public or if it is their property and give some basic diagnostics on it. You know, measurements. I'm sure they did a chemical test on it and see if it's radioactive. Is this a threat? Did this fall off a fighter jet, fighter bomber? You know, where did this come from? And they could not determine the origin of manufacture. They could not determine any seams on it, and it wasn't theirs. They gave it back. It yes. just, it just in that moment, though, it just happened to be Berninger calls the base or the base commander or somebody higher up than him and gets the order, like, do your utmost to get this thing back. We need to keep looking at it. It's maybe more than we thought it was. And uh, he's going to ask. He's going to do his best. But he does not have a warrant. He's not a police officer. He cannot demand that they hand it over. It's still her decision. Yeah. You know. And Jerry Betts, as you'll find out in tonight's show, is a scrapper. So I wouldn't want to tangle with her. And here's something else that she relayed to us through our contact. And this is speculation, but she thought that there might be a connection between the phone call that came earlier from Williston yes. and the fact that the base suddenly wanted it back. Because the phone call comes from Williston. I'd really like to see this. I'm a professor at this university. <laughs> and then she says, robot, you know what? Yeah. It's with the Navy. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Bye. Then all these phone calls, tell him to call us, tell him to call us, tell him to call us. He gets there, get it back, get it back, get it back. She says, nope. And so that's how that whole chain of events unfolded, and it's pretty fascinating. Here's some other stuff that Jerry pointed out, which this is new information. We just got this. At the end of the event at the Blue Ribbon panel, the Inquirer panel in New Orleans, where Terry rescued the sphere from, all filmed and recorded material that was taken there, including the ball going up the plexiglass ramp, all the photos, everything that the media there took was seized. Everything. That's why we can't find anything Yes, from that panel. Even the astonishing research corps can't get past (laughs) a military seizure. Right. There is that one uh, photo, though, that's kind of famous everybody uses because, again, it's hard to find. But I think that was also what our contact said was part of the deal was that the media knows going in that they would have control over National Enquirer or the, you know, the military presence there. The government would have control over what images were recorded and control over dissemination of those images. So they probably also wanted control over Terry marching right out of there with the ball in front of God and everybody. And to yeah, they, well, that's a, <laughs> yeah, because then it raises a big question. It's a good thing that they were there. That yeah. is part of the story is that, well, no one's going to really tackle this kid while cameras are rolling. Yeah. 
there is that one iconic image of Terry with the sphere in front of him at the panel. And I don't know who's to his, it would be to his left, visual right in the photo, but it looks like it might be harder. I don't know. I haven't yeah, really it's hard looked at to know. Yeah. And speaking of harder, I'm glad you brought him up. He's going to come up a lot uh, tonight and, and in this series in general. He, according to Jerry Betts, was blindsided by the way the panel sort of wrapped up and the seizure and how they were being treated and how yeah. the family was yeah. being treated. And he actually told the Betts family, he told Jerry specifically, that they were making copies of the ball that they were making copies of the ball. So that's something interesting. Then we come back to our good friend, Dr. Williston, who's not our friend at all, and is probably, if he's still around, pretty mad at us. But we come back to Dr. Williston, who I think is a doctor from the University of Florida. Mm. Since he couldn't get his hands on it and Jerry Betts refused to return it to the Navy, he came to their house. Yeah, and brought uh, all of his stuff with him. Brought a lot of stuff. I think even more stuff than Heineck brought, although oh, I'm yeah, speculating there. But it sounded no, like yeah. a ton of equipment based on what we've been told. Yeah, he had a carload of diagnostic equipment, it sounds like, which impressed Jerry. And as our contact said, Jerry had a passing knowledge of engineering. And, yes. And it was a quick study. More than a passing knowledge, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just using, yeah, I'm not using their I mean, their, she has patents words, at 15, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just using <laughs> the, this person's word that she knew bigger concepts of engineering, you know, the scientific method, things like that. She was impressed with this guy. That's one thing that we asked about. Was this guy some kind of quack? Who knows? He was a little mysterious, but she didn't feel like he was probably the guy he said he was. Yeah. That there might be a Dr. Williston now somewhere who just shows up and investigates things. But it seems to be that there is not much trace of a Dr. Carl Williston other than the news reports, the interviews, the statements that were made by him. But this is the person who actually did show up and examine it for at least six hours. And Jerry's impression of him was that he was no joke. He was well-educated. He knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. Had, he was on a mission of some kind. Yeah. And there's a question as to who is he? Because when you think about it, well, the Navy, or at least this one station, who maybe it was just an EOD team, was saying, well, we're going to take it back. He right. calls and he can't get it. He then, apparently, whoever he is, university professor or not, has the power to then go around, and this is speculation again, because maybe that was all a coincidence, but to go around, call the Navy and say, do not release that sphere. Do not release that ball. We need to get it back. I need to look at it now. Yeah. And so then he winds up doing it at the house himself. And the interesting thing about that is the quotes from him, now that we're confirming that this is an actual person, which I I was never implying in the other parts that he didn't exist. I was more implying that I didn't feel like he was using his real name. And maybe he is or isn't, but no, no, he's you know he's, he's, he's Omega a, minus one institute, yeah. you know Baton no, no, Rouge. Yeah. No record of that either, by the way. <laughs> well, it could be a front name. There's a business card and an address, and maybe there's an intern monitoring the yes, desk. Yes, you're making a and, joke right now, though, no, because not, we don't well, have any of that information. No, no, there is no business card. Right. There is no address. There is no history of this company. What I'm saying, could, the way this institute, I should say. Yes, and you might think it's movie biz stuff. Is that oh, it's just like a spy movie kind of thing. But that actually happens. You do get a physical address. There's a place to go to, but there's one administrative assistant sitting at the desk answering a phone call. And you know what? how you could tell that that's not just the military. That's what's happening with corporations in places like Zoom Switzerland. Where, oh, no, now we're headquartered in Switzerland. We don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. And you go there, no, there's an address. That's a financial thing. You know though. what I'm saying? But yeah. it's a front. We don't yeah, but- know anything about Omega Minus One. What we right. do know is that a real guy who is most likely a military scientist. Again, there might be a a real Dr. Carl Williston in the arc right now. He's going to be signing up soon. Hi, I'm Matt McCoy, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Purchase. Now back to the show. 
Just a few more things to touch on here with regard to the call we just had. Since we were recording, we wanted to just go ahead and point it out because it just happened. One of the things that Jerry said, which I thought was interesting, was she talks about the second set of x-rays, which you're going to hear so much about tonight, and that there was clearly that seam or this white line, and that was different from the first one. Now, our contact said, but I was so sure it was the same. It was the same sphere because I spent a lot of time with it. I was playing with it. The family was playing. We knew what it looked like. It looked exactly the same. And Jerry told our contact, well, they can do that. They can make a copy of it. And I think they made a copy of it. And at the time, she said, and she gave us permission to share this information, Jerry was so concerned with the second set of x-rays that she commissioned, revealing that it had a seam in it now and a different interior, that... She was afraid that they would know that she knew that it had been replaced or duplicated, and she burned those. Yeah. Yeah. I think for her, she's open to the idea that the sphere was at some point replaced. We'll talk more about that later. The last thing that Jerry pointed out that I thought was really interesting was that Dr. Hynek apparently felt that the sphere should be kept in a Faraday cage. Now, we've mentioned Faraday cages on the show before, but just again, for those of you that don't know what they are, we actually talked about them with relation to the DR-60 and the Sally House. They shield whatever's inside of them from electrostatic and electromagnetic influences. Yes. uh, Right there on the internet, you can find that pretty easy. So the idea here would be that Hynek clearly thought that that device was either influencing something else or under the influence of something outside of it. And he felt that in order to prevent that influence from gaining control over it, I'm I'm speculating here, Mm -hmm. it should be in a Faraday cage, which is very interesting. For a metal ball that supposedly just rolled off of a artist's Volkswagen microbus (laughs) in the woods. Still could be a weapon. Yes. So I just want to remind everybody that the unofficial report from the Navy, from wherever they examined it, whether it was Mayport or Jacksonville Naval Air Station, indicated that the process of manufacture was unknown, and this is the more important part, as it relates to the ongoing story of the x-rays that have been referenced to so many times. It had no seams and no fill point. No seams and no fill point. So just keep that in mind. And Hynek was not the only one concerned with keeping it in a Faraday cage, right? No. According to Jerry, I guess, Dr. Carl Williston, also recommended that it should be kept in a Faraday cage, which acts both ways, prevents signals from coming in and those going out. So we're not sure why, but he was the one who reported that radio waves were coming from it. Again, part of the uh, debunker argument is that this thing was not giving off any radio waves. Well, he at least reported that from his measurements and also that it was highly magnetic. Now, we already went over all of his findings but as shadowy as this guy might have been, he did give interviews or statements to the newspapers. And as we said, I think in part one, one of them that's famously referred to here came from the Ottawa Citizen newspaper, Ottawa, Canada, going over this again. And he had a quote that he called this weird magnetic pattern coming from the sphere a, quote, mind bender, end quote. So Dr. Carl Williston, no matter who he was, is the guy that is often quoted as making the more outlandish, I guess, or the more um, wild statements about this sphere 
in the media. And we reported on that in part one, because again, that's one of the few things that people come out and uh, described a lot of the yeah, he's frequently uh, weird, so, yeah, well, quoted yeah. for all the people that didn't have access to the Beth family like right. we did, who have told this story over and over again. Williston is the one that always gets quoted. Yeah, yeah, because it's the more sensational statements about what the scene could do, apart from the physical observable things that the family was seeing. Like, you know, the weird rolling pattern, it making this art coming back to you, the patterns on the table, the heat, all that kind of stuff. He's now actually using instruments on that and and telling the media about it. So now that this has come to light that, you know, he actually did show up. He's a real person. He really did examine the sphere like all day for at least six hours, as it's been reported. And he did make these statements that this is what he found, that he was really interested in this. Now, keep in mind, part here in the story is that he had heard of it somehow, probably from the media reports, and that piqued his interest. And again, Jerry doesn't know for certain if he placed a call to the Navy or had access to the top brass there to get them to you got to try and get this thing back or we need this back or what his affiliation was. She just seemed uh, to have a gut feeling and it was a weird coincidence that she talked to this guy and 45 minutes later, she's getting calls from the Navy like, you know, as soon as that guy shows up, have him call us. Yeah. Please, right away. Yeah. That suddenly there's this urgency. So Williston may not have had any military contact or affiliation. And so if he's one of the ones saying that this thing should be kept in a Faraday cage because... Who knows who's controlling it or who knows if these radio waves that are coming off of it are harmful or what's happening or, you know, that goes back again to the uh, the joke that it's an alien bugging device. It's sending signals back to the mothership or something. Yeah. People are concerned about this and maybe it's ideas or reports like this or statements that are giving people these ideas. Plus, it's just weird. That's where people's imagination goes. But just to recap some of the weird things that he had said about this, Dr. Carl Williston, it was a mind bender because... Quote, because the flux density of the field fluctuated in potency based on an as yet unidentified pattern, thereby defying the known laws of physics. And he was unable to determine a pattern in the movement or explain how that was even possible. He claimed that the metal of the shell that composed the sphere was something like stainless steel, but it also contained an unknown element that made it slightly different than stainless steel. And so the Navy is just saying, well, it's alloy 431. But Dr. Williston, he's coming out with this report like, well, yeah, it's like that, but there is something in it that is unknown or beyond our knowledge at the moment. And something else that gets reported is that no one actually said any radio waves are coming off of it or no one re really reported or measured that was happening. Williston is the one who told Jerry Betts that he found radio waves coming from it at a magnetic field around it. So that's where we're getting a lot of this. And we're not hearing this so much from the Navy, at least they may be testing for it later on, but they're not reporting that to the public. They don't have a responsibility to. They met their responsibility, as we just heard, that they determined it was not a threat as far as they knew. And that's the end of it. Except, Initially. Well, that's, that's the first that's, Navy examination. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. The second one happens at the Blue Ribbon panel, and we don't really know what they did there because they're not talking. And not only that, they seized all the film and recorded evidence of what went on there. Right. So my thinking is that there are two levels of interest or dealing with the sphere. There's a very basic level of interest and determining of public safety. And then there's one beyond that, which is now this thing is of interest because there are things about it we just don't know and need to study it further. And no one's making a conclusion yet, because even Williston said, I'm not ready to say this thing is extraterrestrial. But I will say that it's 
displaying some very unusual properties that should be studied further. So that has been said, and people are doubting whether he existed. Well, there we go. To me, that says, Jerry Betts laid eyes on this man. Whether his yeah, name was, was Williston or not, we <laughs> right. don't know. And on top of that, yeah. he showed up with a ton of equipment. That would lend some veracity to all the statements he made regarding the more outlandish characteristics of the sphere that you just brought up. Right. He tested it right in front of her. Our contact within the family made it clear that not only did he do that right in front of her, she wasn't about to let it out of her sight mm-hmm. after it came back. So when he came to do all that testing, she sat right there and watched him do it. So that's very interesting to me is that, again, it's a real guy, but nobody could find any trace of Omega Minus One, his institute out of Baton Rouge. Nobody can really find that name. Or I found this to be interesting as well. Nobody knows a solid spelling for this name either. We're also still looking into whether or not he was ever a faculty member at that university. right. And we haven't gotten feedback on that yet. And I want to reiterate in terms of the timeline, in case you're getting confused, all the tests that he did were prior to whatever happened to it, whether it was swapped or deactivated or whatever at the Blue Ribbon panel. This was prior to that. This was right after it came back from the first, what I would say was more likely a cursory explosive yes. ordinance disposal examination right, of it. Right. And then he pretty much showed up right after that when he couldn't convince the Navy to convince Jerry Betts to give it back to them after they brought it back. Yeah, so, so it goes to the larger picture here that if he was a member of a government research facility, branch, whatever, And not just running a woo-woo lab, checking out new age kind of things. If this guy is saying, watch out for the radio waves coming out of it, you probably should pay attention. Yes, and we're going to come to some of the skeptics' arguments against the sphere in part four of the series. But one of the things that Forrest just said alludes to one particular skeptical viewpoint that indicated that they were able to find the Omega Minus One Institute and that it was a holistic institute. They branded it as that. I think, to diminish Professor Williston's or whoever that gentleman's position was on the sphere. But we now know that he's a real person, and he showed up and examined it in front of Jerry Betts, and he was not bringing holistic materials to examine the sphere. Before we got that phone call, which was fascinating and brought a bunch of new information to light, we were talking a little bit about our Betts family members' interview that we just came out of. So we did want to come back and touch a little bit on some of those points now, which are actually redefined in a way with the new information. One of them that's interesting to us is that our source from the Betts family indicated that Heineck had said, if it was ours, we would have known. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a mystery about it, whether it's terrestrial or not. You don't do all this investigation if you know what it is and you just need to recover it, even mm-hmm. if it's some sort of top secret system that the public's not aware of. Mm-hmm. She got the second set of x-rays, which we talked about, and could tell something wasn't right after it came back from the blue ribbon panel. So there's definitely something weird has happened. It's got the white line down the middle. There's shavings inside of it, which look different from what they saw inside on the first set of x-rays. However, yeah. the exterior of it looked identical or reasonably enough identical that they thought it was the same sphere. So there's some question about that. Then there's the whole story she shared, which was pretty amazing, about these guys that showed up and the police officer in the family had gone to pick them up from the airport. They gave him a $1,000 tip. They offered him that to bring them to the Betts family house. In today's money, that's five grand, just under five grand, about 4800 And there's some question as to Forrest and I, when we were first gleaning that information, there was the whole question of, is this a men in black situation? Or my money was on the possibility, and this is confirmation bias on my part, that they were agents of a foreign government, for whatever reason, who had heard about this. And sure enough, Jerry Betts did report to us that they did seem to have Eastern European accents. 
So <laughs> there's something going on there. But here's the other thing. They show up, and as our source said in the interview, they offered $250,000 mm-hmm. on the spot for the sphere, sight unseen. Yeah. Here's the thing. Our source called back and made a correction to that. It was factually incorrect. Jerry actually corrected the number to $750,000. Sight unseen for the sphere. That's what these two gentlemen who gave $1,000 to the police officer just to get driven to the house, they offered $750,000 for the sphere. And this is in 1974, and this was before it had gone to the blue ribbon panel. In today's money, that's about $3.8 million. Hmm. And so for an ordinary stainless steel ball. That's right. And she told, I believe she told them it wasn't there, although Mm -hmm. it was. It was in the house at that point. Yeah. But she said, well, it's not here. They left empty handed and also apparently kind of miffed. Well, Uh, I mean, sure, it was a long flight. (laughs) Well, you don't know where. where Well, yeah, I don't know. From this planet or another country, we don't know where they came from. But whatever it was, Forrest, you had alluded to the idea of the mysterious sort of Bigelow character who wants to get their hands on this technology, whatever it is, no matter who made it, so that they can take advantage of it and resell it or reverse engineer it or, you know, what have you, whether it's a political reason or a financial reason to determine what this thing is. They obviously don't think it's just some kind of ball bearing that was found in the woods. Right. That's what I would guess. Seems logical to me that there's something about it that is outside of ordinary stainless steel alloy 431. Remember, Heineck did shavings on it and reportedly got back some material within the steel. And I don't know if it's completely a new type of steel or what it is, but according to our source said, this metal has some kind of crazy atomic number as well. And that confirms what Williston said. And the other thing that was really fascinating was that when our source talked about how the family left it out in the sun and then it came in and was hot for three days. Yeah, that's interesting. What's going on there? And that's what led to all the, and this clears up a lot of misinformation too in the online sources of information for this, where everyone say, oh, it was solar powered, cloudy days, it didn't do the same thing. Apparently that was all made up. The Mm -hmm. reality is they left it in the sun one day, it got hot, didn't cool down for three days, and then they decided not to leave it in the sun anymore. (laughs) So that's a little bit different from it's solar powered. That's another thing that the family wanted to clear up. That's interesting, but maybe that's just an effect that's due to the nature of its construction. If it has, what were you telling me the name of it? Like a thermos, how it's built. What is that called? Oh, It flew out of my head. A doer flask. A doer flask, yeah. right, which is what a thermos uses to keep your soup or your coffee hot or cold or whatever. For yeah. It's got well, air around it, a pocket of air. And yeah. maybe it just got heated up and it's so well insulated it just stayed hot from the sun. The point is, if that's true, it... It should have a fill great, point. Uh, yeah, well, that's the idea is that yeah. it's containing some kind of liquid or material inside that you want to keep at a good temperature and then use it later but maybe the principle is the same. As I said, there's a container within a container idea here. And that was described from the X-rays yes. upon seeing them, is that there are several densities, at least maybe one or two, that comprise the inside of the sphere. That yes. was Harder's explanation of that or his interpretation of that. By the way, we're going to be talking about those X-rays a lot more in part four. We're just kind of touching on them here because we have so much other stuff to cover tonight, but we will be getting more into depth on what the X-rays revealed in part four. Well, these guys are interesting because they're real. They show up. There seem to be two types of men in black, I guess, the typical alien-looking weird robot ones with the wires hanging out from their hat. Remember the guy from uh, 
Mothman. Yes. Yeah. Just somebody weird showing up who can't cut Wires steak. Wires in the socks. <laughs> just yeah. something very odd about them. They're usually the ones you hear in the stories or people's accounts that tell you to stop looking into something. You didn't see anything. You saw the planet Venus. Yes. Go back to your normal routine, human. And that's the end of that. They try and discourage you from continuing to check into something. These just sound like some kind of government agents, obviously. Yeah, Either but for, I don't even know which government. Also, it could have been industry. Like I said, if this thing actually had these properties, had the heat retention, because that's a pretty amazing. The sphere could have really dramatic technological industrial applications. You know, so it's not just building a death ray, you know, an alien atomic bomb. This thing has technology that could make you billions. Well, you know? I had a theory on it, and I'm going to get into depth on that in part four, but I had a theory that it might be an INS or an inertial navigation system. Oh, yeah. You know, this is what sophisticated aircraft used before GPS came along, and I read up a lot about it since we started this series, and it's pretty fascinating, and it's very, very, very expensive, and it took a long time to build. Yep, yep. And everybody wanted to get their hands on it. And you know what? Before we wrap up this commentary section here between interview chunks, let's not forget Dr. J. Allen Hynek seemed to confirm that there were bodies at Roswell. Yes. That were recovered. Yeah, oh yeah, we glazed over yeah, that, that, that one, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> that really happened. Yeah. Yeah, a, yeah you took <laughs> Oh two yeah, by the way, there yeah, was yeah. there was definitely bodies at Roswell. Yeah, he's dropping a few secret knowledge bombs on the family. Yeah. But why is he doing that? What's the point? You may ask, is it subterfuge? Is he misdirecting them? Is he trying to angle his way in to gain their confidence by giving up a few things and making it seem like, well, I'm giving you some uh, secret knowledge here, so you should let me know everything. He's trying to disarm them, yeah, Yeah. to get them to trust in him and reveal some of the stranger things the Sphere's done for them. Which they did. I mean, they were very forthcoming with him, I believe, and didn't hide anything from him. So it could be that he's just genuinely wanting to tell somebody who understands strange objects because they own one. So it seems like the reason he's doing that is that I I think it's an exchange to get the family to warm up to him in a way. To trust him. Yeah, he's a bit of an eccentric. A lot of professors are, a lot of scientists are. And it's his way of getting in there and gaining their trust and becoming friendly and also, you kind of want to have to tell somebody about that, you know what I'm saying, without getting into too much detail and what was involved or what was actually recovered and what technology was there. There are people who have done that afterwards in books. But it's interesting that he would kind of confirm that and some other things about the sphere that were personal feelings about it and ideas. But as you said, it seemed he had a personal viewpoint that he kept more private and that came out later in his career and also the public one where he just played ball. Yeah, because he told the public his official on the record response to this investigation yeah. was that it was definitely a man-made object. Right. He told them it wasn't or yeah. he didn't know. So that's unusual. And then with regard to him saying that there's bodies at Roswell, there's a part of me that wonders, either there were bodies at Roswell, the eternal unanswered question until we see one, or he's saying that to deflect attention from the fact that this is top secret military technology and the government uses him to throw people off the trail of emerging defense technology. Yeah. And the way that they do that is they say, oh, well, this isn't ours. This is alien. We don't really know what it does. When, in fact, we do know what it does. We just don't want civilians to know what it does. It's not weird. It's two sides of a really weird logic coin. Yeah. 
it's like, what's the purpose of Project Blue Book? It's to tamp down all this crazy speculation and people coming forward with these stories that are outrageous that they, the Air Force, just wants to go away. There was a craze there. J. Allen Hynek himself said, I think this is a fad. It'll eventually die down, I'm pretty sure of it. And he didn't mind tamping down these crazy stories with explanations that were rational and prosaic, like you just saw Venus or whatever it was and explaining it. And that was the purpose of some of these more public-facing projects. And on the flip side of that coin, they're using crazy stories to cover up what they're doing. But what's the connection here? If they do have technology like that, where do they get it? A lot of people think they got it from reverse engineering stuff at Roswell. Philip Corso. There are ideas that there are introductions into our world of strange technology, perhaps like the sphere, that have led people to great breakthroughs that have since been kept secret, and some not so secret. There are those that claim the microwave oven came from alien technology or was a seed of it. A lot of the space exploration technology that we currently enjoy had its roots in some reverse engineered alien tech. Those are some of the way out ideas out there. But like you said, what's the purpose? Well, I think in this case, when we look at the sphere, he just really wants to get next to it. All right, so we're going to get to our next portion of our interview with our Betts family member, and we're going to find out that although up until now, the family has been relatively safe, things are getting a little strange, but as we said from the phone call that we received during this segment while we were recording it, Jerry Betts was getting to a point where she was significantly concerned about the safety of her family, and that's why when she got that second set of x-rays that revealed that the sphere had changed and was either replaced or different, she became so concerned for her loved ones that she destroyed those x-rays. And it turns out she might have been on the right track, as we're about to find out. So after we finished uh, part one, you and I were chatting on text, uh, just trying to get some clarification on some things. And you pointed out that you had recently been in touch with Jerry and there was this one little tidbit that we had maybe left out of the big picture story. And that was that she had been physically assaulted or attacked at the house during all of this. Yes. Yes. There was a lot going on at the time, of course, that made her concern for the safety of herself and for the family and strange people showing up. They lived 45 minutes from town. I mean, if you really booked it, it's 45 minutes from, from town where anybody could help you. So they were pretty remote. Um, she had scheduled for some people to come out and do some work on the septic tank. The truck showed up. The guys had taken the lid off the septic tank. They told her that they would have to come in and out of the house to flush the toilets and that sort of thing. So she went about her business. She's home by herself, and this is early in the morning. She had her back to the front door, and she was on the phone talking to her son-in-law, who was a police officer, and she heard the people come in and flush a toilet and leave, and then she heard them come in again, and then nothing, and all of a sudden, a man grabbed her from behind, jumped on her, and grabbed her around the neck. She fell off of the ottoman that she was sitting on, dropped the phone, she was screaming into the phone. They're trying to get me. They're trying to get me. And, and Garland, who was on the phone, Fred Lampe, he immediately knew something was wrong and starts getting on the radio, calling people, this is what's going on. So when the man realized that she was on the phone, they tried to get her out. She put up a fight. He ended up just booking it because he knew at this point she's talking to someone and, and we need to get out of here. They jumped in their van, 
they took off. If you were to Google the island, it's a crazy, windy, one-lane island road, and they were booking it to get out of there. And luckily, there's only one way in and one way out. So by the time they got to the main road and started heading down to get back toward Jacksonville, they were intercepted by the police. And I guess charges were filed, and it became kind of a he said, she said thing. They were saying, well, we didn't actually really assault her. What happened was... and. And it just really never came to any fruition. But interestingly, one of the guys that was part of this just took off, disappeared, dust in the wind. Couldn't find him. I think later on, the prosecutor's office tried to find him. He's just gone. The man that owned the company said that he hadn't really done a background check. He'd hired these guys. He didn't really know who they were. So is it part of this whole story of the ball? Was this just another episode of someone coming in and trying to do something weird? Was it just coincidence? But either way, you catch yourself jumping at, at shadows, you know, because you just never know what's connected, what isn't. I mean, she could have easily been thrown in the septic tank with the lid back on, killed, kidnapped, and no one would have really known had she not been on the phone. And so, like you said, it's not clear what the goal is, right? I mean, you said that no. at the time there were valuables in the house that would have been something that they oh. might have gone after, right? Oh, absolutely. She had tons of jewelry. There were lots of valuables. Yeah. And she's home alone. And if you looked at any pictures of her, first of all, she's still a beautiful person. She was gorgeous and not a big woman. She's 5'2". She weighs about then probably 120 pounds. Uh-huh. So a big guy could easily take over. And she was there, like I said, with no one else around and, and no neighbors around. This is the middle of nowhere. So no help on the way. Right. And you said the other person who, the one disappeared and the other one who was picked up just kind of pled out or something, got probation, No, didn't really do any time or anything. Exactly. And I think she said that she was contacted here and there to give a witness statement and to, of course, she had to identify him, which she did. But it became, like I said, a he said, she said, and I think they had bigger fish to fry, so they ended up letting the guy go. I'd be interested to know whatever became of that person. Anybody that does that, you know that he's not something you want running around in society. But um, she just, I think she was protected by something, and she's smart, and she's a little scrapper, too. (laughs) Good fight. (laughs) Does she have any speculation on what it might have been or what it might have been related to personally or any kind of intuition? She thought maybe she had jewelry on her engagement ring from her husband. Maybe it was that. She didn't know because there was nothing. They never asked for anything or tried to take her rings or anything. It was just he dove on her and grabbed her and got his arm kind of when he grabs one around the neck from the back, got her and wrestled her down, not knowing that she was on the phone because she had shoulder length hair and the phone was hidden. So thank goodness. Wow. We don't know if it had anything to do with the ball. Now, they didn't say anything about the ball, so maybe it wasn't related, but this was during that whole time. And again, like I said, when our phones rang and rang and rang then, you sometimes couldn't get a call out. So the fact she was on a call and could have that save her was just, it's one of those moments that you just say, thanks, God. Thank you for looking out. They never connected one of the guys uh, to any statement. They never claimed that they were hired by somebody. They really just kind of clammed up or never, never said anything to the prosecutor. Is that correct? They did. And I don't know how much work was really put into it. You know, the 70s, that was a racially charged time, especially in the South and especially in Jacksonville. There's a lot of terrible things that went on during that time. So there was a lot going on on a woman getting assaulted. And especially if you add to it, oh, these are the spaceball people. Yeah. How much did that play into it? I don't know. They may have thought she was a quack, but nothing really was ever done. She went in and did her due diligence on it, but it was just dropped. They were caught, and I'd, I'd have to go back and clarify that with her, but they were caught, and then I guess you're released on bail or yeah, whatever. Yeah, they were out on bail, I think. Right, yeah, yeah, and he just, he just 
he was gone. Yeah, he split while he was on a lot bail. of time. Can you imagine though, if somebody, if the family doesn't know and she's there by herself, and they do throw her in the septic tank, put the yeah. lid back on, and you come home, oh, she's just gone. How long would you survive in there? So yeah, she's had so many brushes, and and I think I told you before, this is a woman that used to run picket lines in her truck. Yeah, she's you know, fearless. When she, was, when she got that trucking company, she's not easily intimidated by anybody, and she's smart, and she's got that survival instinct that some people are just born with, and she has it. But she's still a very good person, but I wouldn't want to get in a fight with her. <laughs> but we, we just rarely even talk about it anymore because it seems like every time it goes away, it comes back with people are so angry, like we've tried to pull one over on people. It's like we didn't ever try to pull anything. We don't know what it is either. We're not saying it's one thing or the other. We were just as curious as everyone else. We had no agenda. No money was ever made. We never sold a right to it. We never took any money for it you know, because we don't know what it is and it could be something bad. It was funny, the amount of anger and frustration. And I guess in the 90s, someone said that we lived in Midland, Texas and that we disappeared. And then the FBI came looking for us. They were very accusatory know, like, well, you know, what, what exactly is going on here? And why aren't you contacting people that have been trying to get in touch with you? And where have you been? It's like, we live in Jacksonville. Our name is everywhere here. We're not that hard to find. Right. Come on. We have an island named after us. <laughs> That's where we are. Right. We've never been to Midland, Texas. But it sounds so like they were I keeping just, tabs on you, maybe. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. It was really weird. And it just rears itself up. And then it starts, people think you've got an agenda. We didn't have any agenda, except we just wanted to know, hey, what is this thing? And at first, we didn't even want to know that. It just kind of got out because people would come over and go, well, this is weird. Have you had anybody figure out what it is yet? And it. You know, it leaked out that way. It wasn't us wanting any publicity. Absolutely not. You know, and what's really interesting, having gotten to be friends with Dr. Hynek, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. And at the very end of the movie, he's the guy that's yes, standing there. he's in it. Watching the spaceship take off, you know, and we were so excited. It was like, at that point, he's the star to us. Like, oh, my God, he's in a movie. It doesn't matter <laughs> that he's running this big secret, you know, thing for the government. Right. So that was kind of weird. So every time I see that movie with my kids, I was like, I know that guy really, really well. <laughs> So. <laughs> Concerning Dr. Hynek, did he ever relay like a final conclusion, just a like a gut instinct, even though he may have not totally known what it was? Did he ever uh, tell you guys what uh, he thought maybe it was, like a hunch? Yeah, his hunch was that he absolutely thought that it was from another planet. He really did. He said based on the metal, the four poles, um, and then he had a few other reasons in his list, I'm sure, that were far beyond my scope of thought. Mm -hmm. but. He felt like it was probably some type of warhead device, maybe from another planet. That's what he thought. It was something that, that could, as he put it, implode. Right. Implode. He also mentioned, and this is something I, I didn't even think to look this up, and maybe you guys have run into this. He mentioned that there was a family, and I want to say it was like in England or someplace, and they had found one and had it in their house. And that it was there for a few days and it was doing the same things where it was rolling around and making noises and that it took off and went through their ceiling, that it shot through the roof of the house. Now, I don't know if that's something that he was only privy to or if it's something that you guys could find, uh -huh. but I do remember him telling that and I remember him bringing up the Foo Fighters. Okay. So right. that was kind of where he was leading us. It felt like it was probably something that wasn't good. You know, Dr. Carl Wilson, who was from the... Omega minus one Institute. Did you ever come in contact with him or he's the one who thought possibly it could be a doomsday device and that if it was drilled he, into. Right. That it would explode. Yeah. And I think Dr. Harder felt the same way. James Harder. He was another one. I think that brought that up. I never met that particular man, but I think that Jerry has 
communications with him. Wilson. I'm not sure if it was in we, person or We found that Wilson name, we found it as Williston, Wilson, Wilson with two L's. It's been misspelled so many times on the internet, we weren't even sure. I can ask for And then this Omega Minus One Institute, it's like, what is that? That sounds like something out of Stranger Things, the Omega Minus One Institute. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Doesn't it make it sound so corny, though? I mean, when, yeah. when I tell people, which I had to come clean to the people we're having dinner with tonight, I had to come clean and go, okay, here's what's going on. <laughs> and they said, well, what? You know? I said, well, here... So I just said, just do me a favor and Google bets space ball. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, as I'm walking out of here, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> See, that's why. But I can find out any of the things, the nuances of, of people and things like that, that you need clarified. I can ask Jerry for it. I don't know how much she'll want to give up, but anything she can remember, she will. And she's pretty open about stuff, but she too doesn't want to go back down that road because people do think you have an agenda that what are we out for money, notoriety, what, who wants to be known for the baseball for God's sake. <laughs> <you know? Right. laughs> I'm Martin, and when I'm not hiding from the shadow people, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There's no way to really know if that attack was connected to the sphere or not. But it happened while all that stuff was going on. Yeah, it's a strange coincidence. Yeah. And she was convinced that they had opened up the septic tank because it was possible they were going to dump her in there. Well, she called them out to actually do work on it, and they started the work. They took jobs at this septic tank company. Yeah, that was a local vendor that yeah. she probably had used before. Right. But, you know, you don't get to pick what guys come. So yeah. somehow these guys got into the equation, and they went out there. What they were after, it's hard to say. You know, do right. I think it was part of some large government conspiracy or relates back to the offer that she got from the mysterious dudes who had three quarters of a million dollars in 1974 dollars? Yeah. I don't necessarily think it does because it's been described by our source in the family as kind of a Keystone Cops operation. It wasn't exactly slick. They didn't notice that she was on the phone because she had long hair and the phone was hidden yeah. by her back was to them. And then when they realized that and she was saying, help, they're attacking me, that's when the guy was like, She's talking to somebody. We need to get out of here. Yeah. yeah. So at that well, point, we're, we're not dealing with professors. This is more of a Fargo-type situation. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it's referencing the Coen yeah. brothers and the original movie, not the series. But I just see. kind of like an incompetence. There was a goal, but it was incompetently executed. Well, However, yeah. it, it is interesting that yeah. the one of the two dudes vanished while he was out on bail. But that is also what you do when you're a criminal and yeah, you get caught you, doing something. I was going to say, you that, happens, that yeah. happens all the time. But this sounds like if you're going to go the route that it was maybe to kidnap her and threaten her to get information out of it, like, where's the sphere? Where is it? Just point it out. We'll go get it. We'll, we'll let you go. And then they don't finish the septic tank job or so the guy has to send out other guys to work on it. That's one idea. That's a possibility. But we don't know when these guys were hired. If people knew somehow that she was going to call the septic tank company, if it was a job, the phones were tapped possibly. Who knows how somebody found out. I'm trying to do the logic here of inserting agents or hired thugs to go kidnap It would her. be a complex operation. Slightly. They didn't yeah. do it very well. It, yeah. If it was a conspiratorial governmental operation or rogue nation operation or whatever, then the whole company would have been fabricated. Like a van shows up and it's got a <laughs> magnet on it that says, Joe's septic tank will pick up your poop, yeah. whatever. And it's a fake company. But this is a real company. You make a very good point here. A couple guys working there. What's the odds they're going to get that call? 
all that kind of stuff. It seems more like it was probably a crime of opportunity, but the question was, what were they pursuing? Were they just pursuing assault? Yeah. Did they know about the sphere? Maybe they thought they could take her somewhere, including to the top of the septic tank and say, we're going to dump you in the septic tank because we want to steal the sphere, Fargo yeah. style, and then we're going to sell it on the black market and we'll be millionaires. That you know? happens more than you think, too. Right. It's dumb plans of dumb, dumb criminals. plans. It, yeah. it does seem like it could have been something like that. Yeah, related and, in that way rather than a government agency that could have nabbed her in a more sophisticated way at any point along those lines. You just don't know. But yeah. like I said, sometimes thugs and idiots are hired due to poor planning and they screw up. There are cases when, yeah, the wrong people are sent to do a simple job like that, which is just nab her, put her in a van, take her to this place. We're going to question her. We'll get the sphere. And to your point, that could be a little bit of a situation of, and this does happen all the time too, because yeah. anybody that watches Dateline knows this. <laughs> Someone could have been, went to them and said, hey, you're going out there. Someone else is paying attention. Yeah. You're going out there. Tell you what. You grab that lady and bring her back to this warehouse. Yeah. We'll give you 5000 or we'll give you whatever. And so all they were charged with doing was maybe delivering her to another person who is effectively shielded by the fact that they don't know who that person is. Yeah. Because here's the other thing, the detail that I love about the story. There's only one road <laughs> out Fort George Island. Yeah. And so she yeah. was on the phone talking to, again... The cop in the family yeah. who's like, could you guys go out to Hexer Road? My mom was just attacked. You need to stop any septic van <laughs> that's trying to get back to Jacksonville. Yeah. yeah. And they did. And then the one guy disappeared. The other one winds up in court, but it's a he said, she said situation. And on top of that, it's about a crime that back in the 70s probably didn't get proper respect from the victim's point of view. It was a nasty situation. Maybe it wasn't related, but Jerry Betts felt it was important to share it with us, so we wanted to share it with the audience because it, it is, it's scary, and it happened in the middle of all this. It's just one example of another case of weird people showing up at the house around this time and connected, or possibly not connected, but just showing up around this time and giving them grief. And that's why they didn't want to talk about it anymore. They just wanted it to go away. And that is the perfect segue into our next and last interview segment with our special guest from the Betts family for a part three of the series here. So we're going to go to that now. There were times, I have to say, that as a little kid being around this, that I would think, God, why me? Why can't I have just a normal life? I have to worry about pimples and not a space ball I got to deal with. <laughs> you know, it was, it was weird. And it wasn't something that we wanted notoriety for. And I think that's been the misconception is that we were trying to pull something over on people or make them think it's one thing or the other. And it wasn't that at all. It was just us trying to figure out what it was. We're in the dark just as much as everyone else. We didn't have an agenda. We'd still love to know what really, what is it? I would love to know. It's very curious. I can't explain what it did. And it's, wow, it's just, it was a life-changing event. I'll tell you that. <laughs> For the good and the bad. I think her fear that it was something bad, I believe that when those people came to the house that time and offered her that money, that was when things changed. That was when we realized this isn't just a joke. This isn't our little local news and we're joking around and rolling up a glass plate and playing games with it. This is something serious. And it could very well be some top secret thing that we don't know. There was a often described a small, like three millimeter, a triangular mark on it from mm -hmm. the beginning. Did you see that or notice that? And did that yeah. change or go away after the Navy had it? No, that was still there. The mark was there. All the marks are still there. Even where Dr. Heineck had done the shaving. Yeah. And you can see it in some pictures. It's like, it looks like it's been filed down. Instead of it being real shiny, it's got that rubbed down look to it. Right. Um, all that was still there. That's why I think it's the same ball, unless they did a heck of a job recreating it. But it just didn't do any of the stuff. So whatever the mechanism was that was inside of it, that has been completely 
obliterated right? from what we could tell. And I, I would love to know. That is one of the questions uh, that's brought up. Don't give it to any agency because you may not get the same ball back. It's been often reported right. that Jerry was warned by people, quote unquote, in the know, who told her, yeah, you probably shouldn't be, first of all, you shouldn't fly it to Dr. Hynek in Chicago because along the way it could be right. intercepted or changed out or just confiscated. Do you have any idea right. who she was talking about that was kind of coaching her on this or that she might have been in contact with that warned her against this? She had a couple of different doctors and scientists that became friends. She had a, a doctor who was very intelligent and became a good friend of hers and Dr. Harder, James Harder. And I think they had become such good friends with the family that Dr. Harder was very suspect of Dr. Hynek, first of all. There was that weird little thing. And, and I don't know if it was rivalry for notoriety or if he really did have a concern for us because he felt like Dr. Hynek was kind of a double agent. Yeah, he's our friend, but he's also got his own agenda. So I think a lot of the warnings and the protection really came through Dr. Harder. I think he was very concerned about who was getting involved. And I think maybe he knew a little bit more about the people that were involved than we did because, you know, we're just average people. This thing just kind of fell in our lap. Excuse the pun. It really did. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. so we had no idea what we were up against. And, you know, the government is a strange and sneaky and greasy thing. Yeah. You want to love it, but you know that it's scary as heck too. And so I think we didn't know what we were up against and he did. I know that he did warn my family quite a bit about things. So yeah, I'll just put it out there. He was kind of the one saying stuff. Wow. Did Jerry ever feel threatened by somebody connected with the sphere before then or since then? Absolutely. Yes. That was a huge thing. There were so many weird conversations, I think, that took place with different military. I told you that at one point, even the CIA got involved because supposedly the Betts family had disappeared. And, and she said that it seemed like while they were showing interest in the ball and saying, well, we're looking at it, we don't really know what it is. At the same time, she felt like they were trying to get information to get it from us, to come and take it. There were x-rays that I told you about right. that came about, and she felt very, very scared to have those. Because it was obvious when she got the two sets of x-rays, one that shows this object that has no seam, no fill point, things floating around. And then another one where it looks like it's been sliced, I guess, yeah. in half. I mean, you can see the seams inside, and then the, the things that were in, inside were completely different. She was just worried that, okay, I got these by accident, and they're going to come back for these. And there were, I hate to say the men in black, but there were some really creepy people that showed up. Yeah. The house was getting broken into. So it was fear of just the average weirdo coming out of the woodwork and causing trouble. And then it was also the fear of some of these people involved. Dr. Heinick had come and befriended himself to the family to where he came back a couple of times and, and corresponded with her for years. But there was something about him that she did not trust hmm. and she felt very uncomfortable with. And she felt like in the end, when the bull was taken and everything done to it, she felt like he had a lot to do with it and that he knew more than he was telling. And he would tell us one thing, but if you go and you read things online about, well, he said that it was nothing. And, and people speculate that he's trying to save his career his career is UFOs. I mean, yeah. it's not like you're a neurosurgeon and you're doing something squirrely. You're, you're, you're someone researching UFOs. So he would tell us one thing and tell us stories of, like I told you, things that I'm sure he probably shouldn't have been telling. And maybe that was to ingratiate himself to us. But I think he had serious ulterior motives. And I was young then, but hearing her tell it and express her concern of him even being in the house, finally in the end, yeah, I think she had fear of danger all around, and legitimately so. Maybe some was 
you know, jumping at shadows, but there was a lot going on. And she's home by herself. Antoine's on a ship, right? you know, halfway around the world. She was home with her kids, her six kids by herself. Would you say that at some point she thought she was kind of receiving verbal veiled threats? Or you said some um, people kind of got aggressive with her. Well, there were things people would tell her, and she had a lot of people whispering in her ear at this time. And, and if you go back and you look at that time, that was a, the 70s were crazy anyway. So you had a lot of people that getting into the UFOs and psychic phenomena and all that. And a lot of these people are interconnected at that area of research. So she had a lot of these people whispering in her ear, but some of them that were involved were involved in a level of scientific. So they weren't your average crackpot. And they were telling her, you need to be really careful because if it's intercepted, this could happen. People will come to your house and take it. You have to worry about this and that. And I think some of those people were in the know enough to tell her that. I know Dr. Harder was one of those people saying, you need to be really careful of these people because they do have an agenda and your safety and your well-being is not part of that agenda. Their agenda is to get the ball or destroy the ball or whatever it's going to be. So did she have a better feeling in her gut about Dr. Harder as opposed to Dr. Hynek? I know that they were both kind of hanging out with the family oh, and yeah. became uh, common fixtures and you trusted them to a degree, but she had a better feeling as far as Dr. Harder's intentions because many people, as you'll hear, they kind of think Dr. Harder was more, you know, on the woo-woo spectrum. He was more believing that it was maybe oh, an he was out thing. there. Yeah. <laughs> he was definitely out there. Um, there was no question about that. But even though he was out there, he still had some credentials that when he spoke to you about certain things, you knew this guy knows what he's talking about. There were a lot of things I'm sure that he was very speculative about, but he became a friend of the family. I believe she met them both about the same time, Harder and Heineck, and I think held them about equal Mm -hmm. for a while. But then as she would converse more with Dr. Harder and the family got to know him and he shared more, I think her gut feeling that something was wrong with Heineck was maybe fed by some of the things that Dr. Harder said, that he's involved in some things that aren't good beyond just the UFO stuff. So I think that she did grow to really distrust Heineck by later years. In fact, I know that she did. And the other night in speaking to her, she said, I really do believe that he was behind what happened. Mm -hmm. I think that him coming to the house, he knew our schedules, he knew where stuff was. He had become someone that she was comfortable sharing things with. And I think he used that to justify what he needed to do, which was to either get the ball or switch the ball or cut the ball or whatever was done in the end that rendered it useless. I don't know if useless is the word, but you know, it just, it didn't do what it did. Could you describe a little bit about the relationship between Dr. Harder and Dr. Hynek? You know, what we'd read was that, you know, Dr. Harder thought Heineck was a little bit self-serving in his earlier dealings with the government and kind of putting himself out there and using that, you know, as an advantage to his, I guess, further his own career. But was there anything that he kind of suggested about Dr. Heineck that was, uh, like you said, kind of leading to intentions that were maybe much more secretive and that there was some very high level, top secret kind of things going on? Yeah, I do know that there was talk of Heineck really being interested, again, in in furthering his career. There was financial gain, obviously. And a lot of people think that way. You can't really fault him for that. But I think it was the, I'm speculating on this because I was a child at the time. So this is just in subsequent conversations later, bits I've picked up. So this is my feeling. I don't know that this is fact or not. But I think he felt like some of the government things that Heineck had been involved in, not only was he not forthcoming with some of the information and saying to people, yeah, some of these things exist, 
I think that bothered Harder a lot because Harder knew from whatever circles they ran in that there were legitimate sightings and findings and things that the government had been involved in. And I think he felt like Heineck poo-pooed a lot of people who knew some of these things to be true and made them look somewhat disreputable mm-hmm. at the time. So I think that was a, a source of contention, and I think it may have been directed at Harder as well. But I know from conversations that I overheard later that Heineck was involved in some of the darker aspects of why we were studying extraterrestrials. I mean, it was to gain knowledge for warfare, for that sort of thing. It wasn't for the good of mankind. And I think that bothered him too, because like you said, Dr. Harder was more of your, you know, sit around in your Birkenstocks and drink a glass of wine kind of guy. <laughs> he wasn't, he was much more passive, I yeah. think. And Heineck was, he was, he's the scary guy. Heineck was kind of scary. Wow. He kind of reminded you a little bit of, you know, when we, we do caricatures of like the Russian scientists, yeah. like we have rays of making yeah. the talk, one of those, he kind of <laughs> reminded you of that, that intense guy and he was forthcoming in some ways when we would sit around and talk and I think I told you he talked about Roswell a little bit he talked about some other UFO things that had happened around the world there was some camaraderie there I guess where he would share things but you always felt like everything was very measured and and I'm sure maybe that just comes with the job he has to be secretive so it felt like things were very measured but it also felt like when he talked to you he was gleaning information. It wasn't just, hey, how was your day? Right. It was more pointed. It was almost like he was always interviewing or interrogating in some way, even in casual conversation. And we found out later on, and this was through my understanding, is that some people slipped and mentioned something they could not have known. And there was speculation. Dr. Harder said, I think your phones are tapped and you need to have them checked. I think, Scott, I may have sent you a copy of one of those letters. Yes. Where somewhere in the letter it says, I think your phones are tapped. I can't remember if that was James Harder or if that was somebody else, but they ended up finding that, yeah, the phones were tapped. And she had shown Heineck around because the island was kind of neat and given a little tour, and we did that whenever people would come in that were friends would flip them out into the woods and show them the tombs and the plantation. And she thinks that it was on that little trip that he was able to figure out, well, this would be a really good place to bug things from. Now, Whether or not that's true, I don't know. That may not even be his area. But later on, she felt that he was behind that as well. Mm. All right. Who taps the phone of some weird little family that finds a big ball bearing? (laughs) Yeah, if if it's nothing. Yeah, who does that? So maybe, you know, she's gotten older. She's 80, almost 87 years old. So maybe a lot of this is just something morphing in her mind, too. But the story from her really hasn't changed much. Because the things she's telling me now, I remember parts of it forever for having said it exactly the same way. Now she's kind of piecing some things together in her own mind. And I trust her. She doesn't look like she's slipping at all mentally. So I don't think she's nutty or anything, but she's putting some pieces together where she feels like, yeah, there was kind of a a plot or an agenda that that wasn't in our best interest. If you found something cool like this in your yard and just went, hey, dude, look what I found and put it out there. It's just a thing that you found. There shouldn't be this kind of craziness associated with it. If it's nothing, that's I think that's what's intrigued us all this time. It's not like we care whether it turns out to be extraterrestrial or something that they got at the Walmart. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that nobody can answer it, and that's what we want to know. That's the curious part. Right, right. It would be cool if it came from another planet. I'm not going to lie. But, <laughs> you know. yeah. but if it didn't, then okay, well, just, what is it? It's still this cool-looking thing. But yeah, the Heineck thing, there was something very odd about him, hmm. really odd. Here's the feeling. When I just said that, I I thought of what it felt like. He had a real double agent feel about him. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. 
you know, he's sitting there smiling at you over the dinner plate. But while he's doing that, his eyes are darting around to try to figure out hmm. the first night that he was there. She said he came in with a bag that almost looked like a doctor's bag, like a valise type thing. Yeah, yeah. And he had no real, it was just like a little overnight bag, you know, a tiny one. It wasn't like he had a change of clothes and things like that. And it, and when she went down for a glass of water, he's down there and he's got stuff hooked up to the ball and checking it out and taking measurements. And she just <laughs> like, hey, what is going on? He kind of begged off like, oh, well, you know, I probably should have mentioned something earlier. And so he just always had that underlying double agent feel. That's the perfect term for it. I've never been able to put it into words. That's it. Was Jerry being as intuitive and maybe even some would say psychic, that kind of sense, was there any kind of connection, do you think, with her or that the activity spiked around her? Or was there any kind of connection there? Or did she have any kind of premonitions about the ball itself? Because one thing we read, and I kind of picked up on this, is that before they actually x-rayed it, she had a feeling of what was inside it, that there were tiny particles or very small, tiny balls in there that wasn't normal. But she was pretty close to that, what it turns out, when they x-rayed it. I don't know that that was so much a premonition as just you could hear things inside. And, and before we got those x-rays, you know, we didn't know what it was. But even before those initial x-rays, the ones that I believe we weren't supposed to get, mm -hmm. we felt like there's something to this. Because from the time Terry brought it down, and brought it downstairs, it started exponentially ramping up what it was doing. I mean, it went from not moving around a lot to all of a sudden it's moving around to the edge of the table and back. And like I said, sometimes 15 minutes, it's rolling around and doesn't fall off the table. It right. just, we knew something was up and that made us realize, okay, this isn't just some piece of junk we found out in the woods. This thing has some purpose and we don't know what that is. And if you don't know, you proceed with caution. So I think it wasn't so much premonition as it was just deducing from what we were seeing that this is a little bit beyond us and we need to be careful. Unfortunately, you think I can go to my government and go, hey, I found this. Can you guys help us with that? That's what you want to believe. And I don't know that they had our best interest in mind either. Right. They'll help you, but they don't They don't care about keeping you in the loop on it. No, or yeah. coming and taking it if they need to. Yeah, and, you know, who knows with the house being broken into, I mean, who knows who's behind that? It could be just one of those things that happen that, it, and you get to a point when all this crazy stuff goes on, you start jumping at shadows where everything that happens, you think, oh my God, it's because of the ball. And probably half of it wasn't. You no, know, they're just weird things that happened and it's just coincidental. It happened at the same time. Okay, so that's our last segment with our guest for tonight for part three of this series. Pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, you guys are really getting the inside scoop on everything that happened and all the people that were involved. We felt that it was important to drill down a little bit before we wrap up tonight on both Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Dr. James Albert Harder. Mm -hmm. Something I noticed just tonight as we were working on this episode, both of these gentlemen have the exact same initials. <laughs> Conspiracy? It's a little odd. Coincidence? J-A-H. Uh, yeah, but interesting. They're both perceived in different ways, but they were both very respected. Now, Forrest, you've done some work on this. Yeah, I Why? just culled together some facts and fun bits from their wiki pages, which were pretty well done. It's a pretty broad spectrum of their life and career, which gives you an idea of at least of these men, in the public-facing way. What we know about them generally through their statements, the conferences, their interests. What you got to hear tonight was a little about their personalities and how they react face-to-face -to, -face 
in a more family setting, which yeah. nobody really knows about other than their own families. Yeah. They, and these were family men. You know, they seem to get along and coexist, but they also seem to be a little suspicious of each other. That happens a lot. As I'm learning more about how all these big names get along is that there is a lot of contentiousness, as we learned earlier about uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel and people not showing up or sending uh, surrogates because they didn't like this other guy on the panel. You know, So we talked a little bit about that before. And I guess the point is that the UFO research community is not huge. There's not a lot of mainstream scientists studying this stuff, practically none. So it's very small. I'm sure they all know each other. They have competing theories or just don't believe in each other's ideas still respectfully, but it does make a difference in how they work with each other and what they think about each other. So we're going to read a little bit about each gentleman, but keep in mind that this sphere has brought out two of the big heavyweights in the field. And there's now people that follow UFO lore that have different opinions about either, depending on how far they're willing to go, I think, into the woo. So the first guy we're going to talk about is Dr. James Albert Harder. He's a PhD. He was born in 1926, passed away in 2006, was a professor of civil and hydraulic engineering at the University of California at Berkeley, and he was a professor emeritus there, as Scott said earlier. So he's respected enough that that's where you get asked back to continue participating. Yeah, and I I was a little disappointed because tonight when our Betts family source called us a little while ago... She said, yeah, if you guys had just called a few years ago, we could have talked to him. It broke my heart because it would have been amazing oh, yeah, to actually yeah. talk to him about this case. Heineck is the more famous of the two, I yes. believe. But he was still Harder's, a family friend at oh, that yeah, point, yeah. which is another significant part of that. Yeah, it's interesting. But both these guys, I guess, harder of the two, they think maybe he's more a little more out there. And both of these guys are eccentric. And many would consider anybody who studies this or even has a passing fancy in it and spends any time on it at all is a bit eccentric. But these men took it seriously, and they spent a good deal of their career in the field of ufology. So James Harder had studied UFOs for over 50 years, starting in 1952, the golden era of UFOs starting off with some of your more, you know, George Adamski and some of your more 50 sci-fi type stories. But he was director of research at APRO from 1969 to 1982. He was one of six scientists asked to testify before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Science and Astronautics for their hearings on UFOs in 68. So that's a select few there. Probably not a whole lot to choose from, but he was just one of six to ask to testify before the House of Representatives. He took the lead in investigating numerous famous UFO cases, Travis Walton, the Pascagoula abduction, and then he took over Betty and Barney Hill's abduction case. So those are some of the big names at least in the realm of abduction. And I think that's where a lot of people jump off with him. Yeah. With their trust and believability with him because they just don't believe in abduction. And they are willing to go so far as strange craft, but people, and their very strange reportings and experiences, they leave him there because he got interested in that and he started to believe that this was true. Nobody starts off believing this right out of the gate. You get convinced over time by the people you talk to and the cases you study. So that kind of happened with him. He investigated the case of CIA remote viewer Pat Price. I didn't know this. I'm not familiar with that name in the world of remote viewing. But based on his remote viewing sessions, Price believed aliens had underground bases at four locations on Earth. 
again, now you're in woo territory here, but that's not that much further out there than some other remote viewer reports I've heard, mm -hmm. but it is a pretty solid practice. Yeah. Seriously studied by the military. Pat Price died mysteriously in 1975, a year after the Betsphere incident. A lot of weird stuff happening around this time. Yeah. Now, here's something very interesting I found from the, his wiki entry, and maybe why Dr. Harder was very interested in what he thought might be extraterrestrial metals. This is a, a quote here from the passage. During his congressional testimony in 1968, Harder mentioned physical analysis of magnesium fragments found in 1957 near Ubatuba, Brazil, said to have come from an exploded flying saucer. The magnesium was of very high purity. Harder conjectured that the lightweight metal, normally very brittle, might become exceptionally hard and strong if purified and made free from crystalline defects. If that were the case, it would be a very good metal for the construction of a flying device. Construction of such high-strength metals is now thought possible with insights gained from the emerging field of nanotechnology, so way before its time. But he had an interest in metals, you know, getting to this orb, I guess that's not right. such a far leap, but right. he had studied this before he was willing to entertain the idea that this was possibly extraterrestrial. And again, that puts him on the fringe and people start to tune out. Here's another interesting theory advanced by Harder that's on his page. And it arose from a sighting of an oval UFO by a chemist named Wells Allen Webb. This is near Phoenix. Webb was wearing Polaroid glasses. You know what those are? Pol I thought this was a typo. I, I, Polaroid's <laughs> a camera, right? Yeah, but they also made glasses. It's like Bell and Hal made supposedly the spheres. I believe yes. the same, that was a branch of the company that also made projectors. Remember the Bell and Hal projector you had in school? Yeah. And you thread those. It, yeah, no, I, I used to be the AV guy. Well, I know there you go. Very, I know the, those backwards yes. and forwards. I didn't know <laughs> right. Polaroid. I thought this was supposed to say polarized, but the well, thing- Well, they were. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's, right? that's what's happening. Yeah, okay. no, no. Polaroid, they had a brand of sunglasses that were polarized. Yes. That cut down on glare. Yes. That's the point of that. Well, this Wells Allen Webb, this chemist, was wearing these glasses, and he noticed three concentric dark rings around this UFO object. Now, Harder thought that the observation might be explained by a very powerful magnetic field surrounding the object, causing polarized light from the sun to be rotated, or the Faraday effect. Yeah, Faraday's coming up again here. Yeah. Exactly how this magnetic field might explain the object's propulsion was unclear, but he thought it might be connected with gravitomagnetism, an analog of electromagnetism predicted from general relativity. Theoretically, a gravity-like field can be generated by a moving mass, but the effect is normally minuscule. Harder was, again, unsure how a practical gravitomagnetic force might be produced. So this sounds a lot like the Tic Tac UFO of recent fame that the pilot reported. Yeah, exactly. Well, given his background in engineering, his earlier exposure to the study of high-grade metals, electromagnetism, propulsion, kind of shows why Dr. Harder would be very interested in this orb. You know what I'm saying? It's got all the hallmarks of things that he'd come across, that he'd studied, was interested in, knew a lot about in our own realm of science here. So somewhere along the line, Dr. Harder had heard about this sphere, became very interested in it. And as we heard, he contacted the family, was giving them a lot of advice and consulting and became a friend, a very friendly guy. He's very open about what he believes is happening. Doesn't seem to be as cautious with what he may or may not know as Hynek was, but he wasn't as much of a government guy, you know what I'm saying, than, than Hynek. Mm-hmm. He probably saw a lot of weird things in his studies and research, but he may have not seen all the top secret stuff that Hynek had with his involvement with the military. Here's an interesting excerpt from 
Ronald D. Story's The Encyclopedia of UFOs. Uh, a lot of people refer to it's a entry about the that sphere. Quote, Dr. James A. Harder, the APRO's consultant in civil engineering, commented that an X-ray of the sphere should result in a donut-shaped presentation. However, the Navy X-ray showed two internal spheres after the 300-kilovolt X-ray bombardment rendered the shell invisible. This indicates that the internal material is more dense than the stainless steel shell. Thus, a substantial portion of the weight in the internal material and the shell could be much thinner than half an inch. That's an interesting concept right there that we're going to take a look at in part four. Our interviewee describes the original set of the x-rays upon seeing them as layers of gray color gradations inside the sphere, like it was different densities or made of different materials, and the space relationship as like an orange inside a bowling ball for comparison. So keep that in mind. Another quote that people use from the Encyclopedia of UFOs He, Dr. Harder, asserted based on his X-ray studies that the two internal spheres are made of elements far heavier than anything known to science. While the heaviest element yet produced in any atomic reactor here on Earth has an atomic number of 105, and the heaviest element occurring naturally on Earth is uranium with an atomic number of 92. Harder claims to have determined that the Bet sphere has atomic numbers higher than 140. If one were to drill into the sphere, he asserted, quote, perhaps the masses would go critical and explode like an atomic bomb, end quote. So that's an interesting statement. That's the, probably the most sensational, alarmist statement to come out of the discussion on the Bet Sphere by ufologists, researchers, and professionals, that if you tap into this thing, you could have a nuclear explosion of sorts, because he was uncertain of what elements were inside the sphere, but was convinced that they were unusual and possibly extraterrestrial, just something that is beyond our science at the moment. So that's where a lot of the talk, at least publicly here, stated by Harder, came about the higher than normal or known atomic numbers. But as we just learned, also seems to be echoed by Dr. Hynek, right? Yeah. He's the one who's saying that there's something weird about these numbers. This shouldn't be. These have been determined to be much higher than what we know. Okay, now here's the other player. Again, the more famous of the two. By now, a lot of people have heard of Dr. J. Allen Hynek and certainly of the close encounter scale that he came up with after he had left uh, his military association with the Air Force and all that, and uh, supposedly, and was doing more private research or independent research on his own. Well, the J in his name stood for Yosef, Yosef Allen Hynek, and he's born in 1910, passed away on April 27th, 1986, at age 75 of a malignant brain tumor. The titles we know him by are astronomer, professor, and ufologist, and probably most notably ufologist. But he acted as scientific advisor to UFO studies undertaken by the U.S. Air Force. That is his main military contact for most of his career, because he was the advisor under three consecutive projects. Project Sign, that was 1947 to 49, Project Grudge, 1949 to 52, and the most famous Project Blue Book, 52 to 1969. Now, the Bet Sphere would have happened five years after the end of Project Blue Book. He just kind of wrapped up working on those projects where he is noted to have said that it was known that his role in those projects was to be a debunker. And he started off enjoying that. He kind of liked knocking these things down. He didn't really believe in it. He liked giving an explanation that was more mundane and explainable, and that most people he thought were just, well, they're just mistaken. These aren't professionals. 
They just don't know what they're looking at, and this can be explained. And so he enjoyed doing that for the Air Force to begin with. He said, I don't know if they came out explicitly and told him, but he said that the Air Force had expressed to him that that was his job, to be debunker in charge. Mm -hmm. But they respected him. They liked his work, and he worked very well with them because he just kind of did what they said. So after he finished Project Blue Book and he started to develop his own independent UFO research, that's when he came up with the Close Encounter Classification System, which obviously was made famous by Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I remember that. Everybody knows that phrase. Yes, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The wiki entry on him states that he is considered the father of the concept of scientific analysis, both of reports and especially of trace evidence purportedly left by UFOs. Yeah, those are two interesting aspects of it that he's studying and puts value into the analysis of just people's reports, where a lot of people dismiss it. Again, they'll tell you a story and people just, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I think that was a while ago. It was dark. You don't know what you're talking about. So he's actually taking these reports apart and at least giving them some credence enough to study the elements of these reports, but also studying trace elements. And when he, famously, he famously came up with the swamp gas Ex- yes, yes that, explanation, he, which was, he later said he regretted. Yeah, because that was one element. It became element. such a joke. Well, that's yeah. what people locked on to. But weirdly, for two reasons, in that, in that case, that was like a three-day flap. A lot of nursing students had seen it. A lot of people had reported on it. And it was kind of famous for the time. And again, I thinking that a few people might be mistaken and that their descriptions sounded more like swamp gas, that was a possible. But People latched on to that, and it's funny, like I said, I think the irony is that people who don't believe in UFOs are more likely to think it's swamp gas, but it also sounded ridiculous to a lot of people. So a lot of people say, well, there is no such thing. It is a natural phenomenon like swamp gas that you saw and you mistook it for a UFO or glowing orbs or whatever. They don't believe in UFOs. And then the people that do think, well, that is a ridiculous assessment. All those reports coming from this flap can all be swamp gas. Yeah, later he said, you know, he regretted it because it just stuck, and that's what you're known as, Dr. Swamp Gas. Right, so he was born in Chicago to Czech parents. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Chicago in 1931. In 35, he completed a PhD in astrophysics at Yerkes Observatory. In 1936, he joined the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Ohio State University. He specialized in the study of stellar evolution and in the identification of spectroscopic binary stars. During World War II, he was a civilian scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, where he helped to develop the United States Navy's radio proximity fuse. Okay, that's a good point, because it seems maybe here's his first introduction to working with the Navy way back in World War II. Right. So he was familiar with them and how they operated. And that might be, I think, maybe the first time that uh, he has military involvement strongly working on this uh, proximity fuse. In 1956, he left the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Ohio State to work at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, where he had the assignment of directing the tracking of an American space satellite, which was a project for the International Geophysical Year, the IGY, in 1956 and thereafter. So this is significant. He was familiar with the satellites of the era and would presumably know if the Bet sphere had anything to do with them. He should have known what the components of a satellite look like, yes. you would think. because And he the told be- the family, this is not ours. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. not only that, I don't know if it's terrestrial. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people go to something that's Sputnik-like 
as an explanation for the bet sphere. Either it's a bladder tank that came off of one, or it's got some radio frequency producing aspects, much like Sputnik. But he probably should have known that. And the bet sphere didn't really exhibit any satellite-like things. It was round and it was shiny, but there's no antenna. There's no constant beeping or constant pattern that's producing. It's doing some radio magnetic kind of things, but it's weird. In 1960, Hynek completed his work on the satellite program and went back to teaching as a full professor and chairman of the astronomy department at Northwestern University, which is where he was, and that's what he was still doing when he came into contact with the Bet Sphere. The thing is, he started to change his opinion of UFOs from reading all those reports he'd gone over, and when they started coming from witnesses, he thought were more credible, like military people, pilots, astronomers, and police officers. And in 1953, he wrote an article for the April issue of the Journal of the Optical Society of America titled Unusual Aerial Phenomena. And he has a pretty good statement about how dismissive and arrogant mainstream scientists were, and probably still are, of the UFO phenomenon. Quote, Ridicule is not part of the scientific method and people should not be taught that it is. The steady flow of reports, often made in concert by reliable observers, raises questions of scientific obligation and responsibility. Is there any residue that is worthy of scientific attention? Or, if there isn't, does not an obligation exist to say so to the public? Not in words of open ridicule, but seriously to keep faith with the trust the public places in science and scientists. As a scientist, I must be mindful of the lessons of the past. All too often, it has happened that matters of great value to science were overlooked because the new phenomenon did not fit the accepted scientific outlook of the time, end quote. I'm on board with all that. Yeah. That's why why I thought we should note that. His mind and heart, I think, are in the right place. Just being open. Let's not just jump to ridicule and putting people down and calling people names. Heineck is saying... There are tons of reports from people that most people would consider much more credible, like military pilots, commercial pilots, people who are astrophysicists, who have seen things. He started pulling his fellow scientists, and I think offhand, he, uh, what was it, like out of 44 people he interviewed, four or five of them had reports of their own. He noted that that percentage was higher than the national percentage of regular citizens. And these are people who should know what celestial bodies look like and what's capable. And they were coming forward. But a lot of people wouldn't, of course, because, again, it damages your reputation. So for a long time, Hynek had a public opinion on UFOs that was official when working with the government. And he had a private one. But he knew which side his bread was buttered on. So in regards to the skeptical arguments that he came out in the public and he said, there's nothing remarkable about this sphere. It's man-made. It's of a common alloy. And it's not doing all these other things. There is a public statement that he makes. And then his views are expressed in private, as we've seen, to the Betts family. Now, here's a fun fact. Heineck and his wife, Miriam, had five children. One of them, his son, Joel, is an Oscar-winning visual effects supervisor. Did you know that he oversaw the design of the camouflage effect for the movie Predator? Oh, no. That we've talked about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which people have described, I think maybe Skinwalker. Yeah. As it looks like there's something affecting the 2D, 3D visual spectrum there and warping, I guess, the reflected light. Yeah, well, the U.S. military is working really hard on that right now. The oh, yeah, DAR- yeah. The and DARPA program is. I just wonder, where did his son Joel get these ideas? Was it from dad? of just what's capable out there, what kind of 
far out technology is happening. And maybe that's where you got the idea for that really cool effect. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. I did, did you know that he was an Oscar winner? No, I did not. He won the Oscar for best visual effects for the movie, What Dreams May Come. Well, I certainly remember that. I watched that movie yeah. and I was blown away by it. Really? Actually. Yeah. What was, was the premise? Amazing. Robin Williams uh, oh, dies, that's to, right. I think, in an effort to get to his wife who had already passed away. So mm-hmm. all the special effects take place sort of in the realm of death, but it's not like a heaven-hell situation. Yeah. It's this weird purgatory, but it's really fantastic. Yeah, another world. Wow. Yeah. He also had another son named Scott. Phil Brook. Just, just kidding. He didn't have a son <laughs> named Scott, though. Yeah. Well, there you go. So those are kind of brief rundowns. I know we've talked about Heineck a lot in previous shows or just here and there, but we never really discussed his career or gave a rundown of it. But it gives you an insight as to maybe why he acted the way he did with the Betts family. Yes, he had to say these things on the outset to kind of preserve his image of being, I guess, more objective and skeptical and maybe more that debunking role because that was what he claimed why he worked so long for the Air Force, why they liked him so much, because he took that role that they gave him and he came out and he squashed everything. As we just saw here with his attitude about arrogance and the opinions of other scientists and also the military people, was that he started to not like the role that he had in that he read so many of these reports and talked to so many people he thought were credible that were telling him outrageous things that, you know, he said, this has to be studied. We have to take this seriously. Why isn't anybody doing that? So he started to shift and he did start to take it seriously. And after he left his connections with the military, He continued his studies independently, as we said. But then I wonder, was he still somehow connected to the military? Because then if you listen to the interview, it's like, well, we don't know what his motives were really, in that he's trying to get in there. As I said earlier, he wants to insert himself into this story. That seems to be the the vibe the family was getting. He wanted to be there with the ball, you know, albeit it's representative. So he had a personal interest, but did he also still have a military connection? And I think maybe that's what Dr. Harder was picking up on. And I think Dr. James Harder wanted the family to be cautious around Heineck because, one, it might be a government thing of just taking advantage of them, but it also might be Heineck using it to propel his own career, to further his own interests. So I think he wanted to be cautious, and he was uh, giving them advice like, yeah, he's okay, but just watch out for this guy. Nobody really knows what his relationship with the military still is or what his angle is underneath. So I think uh, Dr. Hynek had a strong personal interest in this story and this object. It's a big find. It's a big get. It's a, as we said about the Blue Ribbon panel, it's a real big piece of evidence that does something. So he wants to be right there. And I think there's a huge career find for him to have something to study like this. But on the other hand, he started off as a government man. And maybe he still was the government's man. Okay, so... uh That's the tale of part three here. Yeah. As we said at the top of the show, next week we're dark, but you're not going to want to miss part four. In part four, we're going to pick up where we left off here, but we're also going to show you what the sphere looked like inside and answer the last remaining question. Where has it gone? That's going to wrap up part three of our series on the Bet Sphere. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with part four. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. And the name is Marcin, M-A-R. 
C-I-N. Hi, I'm Pia Helene Skarkfjord. This is how to spell my name. M, little c, big C, O, Y. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.